Welcome to the Televerse, the podcast just for TV. Because it's great, we're lucky they make so many fine programs to see. Your host, Owen Kate, like to debate the merits of all that they've seen. Comedy, genre, reality, drama, and anything that's in between. Welcome to the Televerse, less of the show. Hello and welcome to the Televerse. This is Kate Kalsik, joined as ever by Noel Kirkpatrick. Noel, how's it going? It's going all right. How are you this week? Oh man, you don't even want to know. Uh, so I was in a three-car pileup on the highway this week. What? You didn't say anything. Why am I only finding about this now? Well, you asked how I was, but that was not actually... Well, that may have the... will likely have the most long-term impact. <laughs> I did not intend that pun. Uh, of things that happened in my life this week, just even just financially. That was a fun experience. Um, what I've been most struck by, and I'm not intending these puns I to one of our listeners who I know is anti-pun, what I'm most struck by this week actually has been the response from our podcast last week, which has been amazing. And really very humbling as well. I mean, it was just, it was a huge outpouring of, People feeling heard, and that was that was really well. People feeling heard from three straight white people saying those things that they had been saying. <laughs> but yeah, they realized that they weren't alone; that they that they were allies, which made a big difference for a lot of people. Well, yeah, apparently it was just so moving to hear from you guys, and like those the, those people who reached out on Twitter, and I mean Angela who emailed us at the website. We heard from Maribel, JJ, Anna, uh, C, fluttering feelings, and uh, LDV or IDV. Uh, someone, LSK, Voltaire's Mistress, which is an awesome name, I must say. Uh, Candice, Daria, Zdravka, Janie, and CRLP. Um, thank you guys so much for reaching out and posting at the website and emailing us. Um, uh, by the time this is going up, I will have responded to all of you at the website. Uh, I wanted to sort of let people talk to e- each other before I, you know, reached out and said more. <laughs> but, um, but know that Noel and I have been incredibly moved and it's just so like you say it's so humbling to know that we heard from people who just were happy to know that there were other people out there people who you know in the critical community and people who watch the insane amount of tv that that we do who you know aren't in this subset of of uh you know of less crew who also feel very strongly about what happened on the on the hundred um in episode the, the episode 13 uh but yeah it was really powerful so thank you guys so much yes and thank you for listening and reaching out um yeah it was just it was really good to realize that our discussion helped people which i think was really the big takeaway especially for a lot of folks who just said that it helped them work through a lot of stuff and the realization that they weren't alone i think also just uh, just really struck me um mainly because i I've always, I've never been like really deep into fan communities um, for a multi, for a multitude of reasons, but um, I always saw it as like a as a place as a safe space, and I mean, no community is always completely safe. So the realization that there were multiple safe spaces and multiple areas for people to talk to one another and realize that there were that there were multiple places where these discussions were happening and not just limited to a couple of very select areas, um, I think was a big deal for a lot of folks. And it was really nice to have people tell us how they felt about the podcast and also how they felt about the episode and how grateful that they were that people were talking about it. 
Yeah, and correct us. You know, I, I we got a couple corrections, and I very much appreciate that. I don't want to be putting, you know, whenever I notice an error on the podcast, I always go into the post and put a errata. So uh, there will be one of those as well, because, uh, of course, we mentioned um, we were discussing the lesbians, bisexual uh, characters on The 100, and I forgot about one of the the very few characters that fall into that subset. So uh, thank you for that, uh, everyone. And also, I, I do want to mention Mo Ryan, who, of course, came on last week and talked about The 100 with us, uh, did post another uh, article over at Variety looking at uh, the response from the, from the showrunner of The 100 and and uh, some other elements that led into there being such a strong reaction in the fan community. Were you aware of the extent of all of this? Like, hey, come watch us film the finale with one of your favorite characters. Because I knew some of that, but not quite the extent. And it was just making me more angry as I went onto Tumblr and found even more uh, evidence of that stuff. Yes, I was vaguely aware of a lot of it. Um, part of what my job, um, in my desk job, uh, my day job entails is checking Tumblr's trending page to like find newsy items or things to post that we can like use to build off of. And most of the time, especially on like Fridays, it's the hundred gifts and fan fiction and that sort of thing. That's the trending posts. And so like, I'd been aware for a little while about how the community was interacting with the producers and vice versa. So yeah, no, I was aware of it on, on maybe like a just below surface level type of thing. I didn't like really dig too deep, but yeah, I was aware on, uh, on a number of fronts. And then I had read a number of things as well, like you after the episode had aired and just went, oh, yeah, they f***ed that up real good. Yep. <laughs> About as well as one could fuck a thing up. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> well, um, we will not, because I, I know people have asked us, we will not be doing a, a full, like, lengthy discussion follow-up. Um, at least we're not currently planning to. Hopefully the 100 doesn't give us another reason to. Um, but... We do thank those of you who tuned in for that, for listening. If some of you decided to come back and are listening now, thank you. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you are only listening about The 100 and you don't care about anything else, thank you for listening last week. And uh, if we do another 100 segment, we look forward to you coming back. Uh, but yeah, it was, again, it was just crazy because i was just on twitter yes talking with people and responding for just like a day and then i had to go to work on sunday and i felt bad because i couldn't be tweeting with people um and i felt really bad because i spent most of that weekend like sick so i'd be like coming to check twitter and i'd be like i have 73 mentions i never have 73 mentions (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah but um yeah. And um, the last thing I do want to mention about this is, of course, the Trevor Project, which Les Crew, which uh, has started a fundraiser for, uh, the Trevor Project, that fundraiser is over $47,000 at this point and uh, at the point of recording. And I just think that is, Im- I think it's amazing. I just, I can't fully express how moving I find that. Um, I've donated and hopefully some of our listeners have too, but uh, I, I have people that I love dearly in my extended like family and, and friends who at some point in their life could have really used something like the Trevor Project. So it just makes me really, really happy that I'm getting choked up that something positive can come out of 
this anger and frustration um, that so many are feeling. So just tip of the hat to, to Les Crew and to anybody donating to that campaign or just supporting pro- things like the Trevor Project in, in general. But that will wrap up our discussion of, of the 100, uh, for, for now at least, um, this week on the podcast, we're, we're talking a cheerier topic um, th- rather than the horrible treatment of characters on The 100. Uh, I'm talking with Jason Griffin uh, of TV Times 3 and the TVaholic about Northern Exposure, which was is an overdue DVD shelf and one that was super fun, except that you were unable to join us, Noel, which was Sad Panda. It is Sad Panda, but uh, it, it happens. I mean, on the yeah. upside, it's not going to happen for a little while at least again <laughs> but yeah no I, w- I was upset to miss that because i actually have seen some northern exposure and it's a very good show do you have any quick thoughts you want to provide no just that it's a good show that i enjoyed when i saw like random episodes in syndication i never watched it really consistently so mm-hmm. yeah well there's plenty of northern exposure conversation coming at the end of the podcast um and uh Now we're going to dive in with our week in TV, so we'll take a break and come back with our week in comedy. comedy and reality uh we're going to talk a little top chef finale appropriately titled finale uh then we're going to talk about the pilot of party over here on fox uh and crowded as well on nbc i'm going to talk just briefly about the season two premiere of schitt's creek um airing in the u.s on pop and then we'll dive in with the carmichael show fallen heroes and the funeral before wrapping things up with broad city 2016 so we had the top chef finale this week as we mentioned last week noel and i are not super enthused about the final two were you able to or i should say was the show with its editing and such able to overcome that for you for an entertaining finale or were you just sort of underwhelmed i was very much just underwhelmed apart from the uh, the awkwardness through the interviews of bringing charlie palmer um amara's mentor on to help and it basically being yeah i haven't talked to charlie in a few years since I was vaguely implied I told him to go fuck himself (laughs) (laughs) so I could launch my own restaurant. And it's just like, this is significantly more interesting than anything else the show has done. (laughs) Um, Yeah, no, I was, when they announced that uh, Jeremy, Jeremy had won, I basically tweeted, okay, fine, whatever, which is pretty much sums up how I felt about this season. And that was my response to the finale. Um, they didn't really do a whole lot in the finale to 
draw me back into draw me back in apart from like the mentor type of stuff which was a nice way to do like a really quick like personal vignette for both of these guys but it was also like kind of too little too late to get me invested (laughs) nice idea but too little too late um so yeah i just i didn't really get drawn in and i was a little disappointed that amar didn't win just because i was like half rooting for him as opposed to jeremy but yeah, I was just like, nah, okay. Um, I think I'm probably done with Top Chef for a little while after this, mm-hmm. um, just to see if maybe they can like sort themselves out, or if they, they, if I hear that they're doing a really good season, I may like loop back in. But I'm probably going to tap out for a few seasons, which is what I did um, for a little while actually. Like, there's a little gap that I just didn't watch it. And so I may be going back to doing that kind of a gap. Uh, what did you think about the finale? Did you have any, like, really strong feelings about it? The, I think, apart from the mentors, the only thing that also really got me was that Marjorie didn't get picked first. Yeah, that was super <laughs> weird, right? I was just like, you guys, you're going to do desserts. And then, uh, yeah, you kind of crapped out on that, Jeremy. You just did a cheese plate. And um, I was just like, why didn't you pick Marjorie first? Anyone? Yeah. Well, I just when, when they're like, yeah, that guy is stupid for picking somebody else first. I was like, oh, because you're going to pick, you're not picking Marjorie. Okay. This is yeah. odd. Um, but of course, they haven't seen the edit that we have. So, you know, yeah. who knows? But I was going to ask you, because like you say, I think it would have been slightly more satisfying for the narrative that they presented if Amar had won. Um, and I do agree that the mentor thing was a really neat touch as well as, you know, adding a little more drama or a little bit more just reality to, to, to things because, you know, chefs are notoriously combustible, Um, shall we say? Mercurial? Mercurial is a good way to put it. Yeah. Um, so, so I think that was a good, it, it just kind of, it, Top Chef is a very, there's a level of just very blandly professional when you when yes. you like in the the with amongst the chefs there can be drama but nobody is going to go on TV and shit talk a former boss or anything like that cuz it's just it's too insular of a community you'd be shooting yourself in the foot so just sort of hinting at yeah this was my he was my mentor but we didn't necessarily leave it on the best of terms um, was a little more interesting than what we usually get, which is what we got with Jeremy and Jean-Georges. So uh, mm-hmm. yeah, that, it was a nice way to shake it up. And I was going to ask if for you, has Top Chef run out of narratives for you? Because I feel like at this point, it's like I don't think these chefs are less good than some of the previous seasons, but I feel like I've seen most of the narratives that the show can really do at this point, I don't. It's hard to think of different kinds of chefs that we haven't seen that they could throw into the mix. You know, do you think it was a casting issue this season, or was it just they've run out of narratives? Uh, I think it's a combination of a couple of things. I think um, one issue is that Top Chef has gained enough like prestige within the community. Is so like a lot of young up and coming chefs um, that are semi, let's say, semi established. Um, or like going out for it and they're seeing this as a way to brand and market themselves. And so, like you said about that kind of an insular community, but also not wanting to shit talk anyone, they're going to try to be as professional as possible. And so I think that kind of, it, it's a really weird situation in which it's a competition reality show, but it's a personality driven competition reality show as 
since we can't really like judge them ourselves, we need personal aspects of things to come through really clearly to like stay invested. Because otherwise, it's just like, oh, that plate of food looks really pretty. I wish I could taste it, but I can't. So I, I can't say anything about like their skills or anything. So I need like a personal rooting interest. And I think the other problem is not problem, but decision that the show's made is that they actually do really want very professional folks now. And they've wanted that for a pretty long time, I think. Um, main, I think around like seasons like three or four, they've like made seem to make a really conscious decision to have like very professionally oriented chefs. And I think that also kind of like has staunched a lot of the narrative. Because, I mean, we're not getting folks that own and operate food trucks or folks that are more like kind of like trying to break out or like do like catering type of thing. So it's very, it's very, all of us have been nominated for James Beard Awards and that kind of thing. It's just like, oh, great. Yay. (laughs) You guys kind of know what you're doing. Eh. So I think part of it is that maybe they're just, they're also just running out of cities to use, which is why they had to use an entire state this time. Um, yeah, I think they're just, I think it's out of fuel, but yet on the they had a little Chiron pop up and announced that they were casting for season 14. So look forward to season 14. Yeah, fair enough. I, I usually, um, I don't know. I, 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 I watch Top Chef every season. Um, and the last, I really appreciated actually the lack of interpersonal drama in the previous season. And I, I, cause I, I like, I prefer when it's about the food, but then like you say, I need there to be something distinctive about the food, like a challenge that they haven't had to do, like actually make them do a dessert challenge, for example, you know, like make, try to find new ways to stretch them. And I've don't know that they've really done that um, in a significant way this season and in some of the previous seasons. So by the time it comes back, I'm sure I'll be like, oh, yeah, it's Top Chef because I will have forgotten. <laughs> but, I'll remind uh, you. But I can I can see what you're saying about wanting to take some, some time off from it. Uh, let's move on to our week in comedy, and that's starting this week with Party Over Here, which is a new sketch comedy show uh, produced by the Lonely Island guys, um, but starring uh, three women, uh, three female sketch comedians. Um, did you know that this was happening? Because I kind of forgot about it. And what did you think of the pilot? Um, I did not know that this was happening until you were just like, I watched this. Are we going to talk about it? And I just went, oh, yeah, sure. We can talk about this. <laughs> um um, yeah, so no, I did not know that this was happening um, until you mentioned it to me. Um, and I I kind of liked it. I mean, it's very much like a, kind of a first episode of a sketch comedy show in which everyone's still trying to kind of figure out where they fit, I think, um, and what kind of tone that they want to have. But I also think that there's a lot of potential in the show with Nicole Bear, Alison Rich, and Jessica McKenna, who are the trio um comedians that are like in the show and um are in most of the sketches um yeah no i thought it was pretty funny i enjoyed uh the suffragette sketch i thought was fairly fairly good um mainly the woman who was just like but i don't have time to vote and it was one of those jokes that wasn't specific to her it was very just specific to americans who were just like i don't really have time to vote even though I have this right, I mean, I don't really have time, so I'm not going to worry about it. I don't want to ask my boss for the spare time. And it's such a hassle because I need an ID and all this sort of thing. And I thought that was pretty funny considering, like, the election season that we're in. 
Um, but the rest of it was just kind of, for me, kind of there. Um, so I, I'll be curious to see how they, like, fine-tune things and um, figure out what kind of tone that they want. Um, but yeah, so I think it's, I think it's pretty promising. Um, how did you feel about it? I thought it was a solid, but not fantastic premiere. Yeah. Uh, because I would assume that, you know, that when they're writing, they want to sort of front load the season, you'd expect, with some mm-hmm. of their best sketches to make uh, a strong first impression. And if this is their best set of sketches, that's a little eyebrow raising for me but I agree that the the suffragette sketch was really fun I also really liked the um yogurt <laughs> opening yes that, that was that pretty was, sharp that was good um other parts of it were just sort of I could see what they're doing I didn't find it funny but I can see what they're going for um and I don't plan to check in unless people you know tell me I should but um, I do think it's nice that there's another sketch comedy show out there. It's on network TV. Yeah. I like that um, it's a half hour. I really yeah. like that it's a half hour. <laughs> um, and also, just anytime we got more lady comedians on on yeah. TV, but specifically on network TV, that that makes me a happy Kate. So um, yeah, I'm positive in theory and sort of eh, in practice, which is sort of how I am about a lot of sketch comedy. So I feel like that's not necessarily a strong detracting of the. You know, that shouldn't be taken as a, really a slam against this show. It's just not really my comedy. Sure. And I think that's fair. Um, I think a lot and a lot of it is just sketch comedy should be high risk, high reward. But the problem with high risk, high reward is that there's also really high failure rate. And yeah. so you just you have to be like on point every week, especially in a sketch as weirdly crowded is a weird thing to say, considering there's maybe what, like. 10 sketch comedy shows on that people are like really like that are on basically if that that we're just like you need to be really on because it's just like well we had Keaton Peel and we've got Inside Amy Schumer and all these other shows that we're just like we're, we're really in love with have really distinct points of view and I mean also maybe we're just too old for party over there <laughs> well there's that yeah <laughs> but um and we don't have Keaton Peel anymore tears yes but you said crowded, so I'm using that as a transition because our next show is crowded. It is which crowded. had its pilot this week, and uh, I don't have a lot to say about this, other than this is a show about um, a married couple who uh, have two kids that are college age, um, and they they leave the nest, they go to school, and then and then they get out of school and they can't get jobs, so they end up moving back home, and then the grandparents also hover a lot and are basically around all the time. So hence, it's a crowded house when it's supposed to be an empty nest. Um, All I have to say about this is, it is really not funny, and Carrie Preston is doing her darndest, but it's not (laughs) saving this show. Um, This was, for for me, was almost like, it was like really watchable, and that's out of the sheer effort of Carrie Preston. (laughs) Um, and the other actors as well, but I just, she's the character, the actor I have the most affinity for of them. Um, but yeah, so congrats to the cast, but the writing here is nowhere near good enough to get me to tune back in. How did you feel about Crowded? It was so weird. Um, the only other, the best thing I can compare it to was, and not in a quality sense, in, because I think it's actually slightly better than Mr. Robinson, but what was really bizarre about it to me was the fact that the studio audience was clearly not into this either 
I mean, there wasn't a huge amount of there didn't if there was a sweetening of the last track, they didn't sweeten it enough. And so it was one of those instances where the audience just wasn't vibing on what was happening. And the last time I remember that was when I watched the Mr. Robinson episodes. And it was just like, I assumed for long stretches that there wasn't an audience at all. And they just didn't bother to put in laughter in post. But no, there was an audience. There just wasn't anyone laughing. And that's kind of what happened here. And plus, most of the jokes, like you alluded to, are really kind of, well, old and stale. Um, and just, I, just jokes about por- computer porn and pot and there just wasn't a, like, oh, the scientist is kind of stuffy and dating apps. Wow. How crazy are those things? And it's just like, oh boy. And so none of it's really working. And then you collide it with the older, the older type of stuff in which, oh, the parents apparently live right next door. And it's just like, okay, great. But you're right in that Carrie Preston's doing a great deal to try and enliven as much as she can. And she's mugging. Like, I've never really seen Carrie Preston mug before, but she's mugging to try to keep this thing afloat. Um, I think also to make up for the fact that, uh, fact that Patrick War- Warburton just deadpans, and he deadpans very, very well. Um, but it's just, it's kind of a DOA type of show, even though it did really well. Ratings-wise, like, it did very, very well for an NBC brand mid-season comedy. It did pretty well with... Are you trying to depress me right now? Well, it's also... It was also slow TV week. A lot of stuff was off this week. So... That's that's true. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe once, like, everything's back, things will, like, resettle for the show. But, no, it did fairly well this week. What, what I most want for this show is for them to keep pretty much all the cast. Like, I think Miranda... I, I haven't seen iCarly. Right? That's where Miranda Cosgrove is from. Yeah. Yeah, but but what I have seen of her has impressed me, um, and like you say, Patrick Warburton is the man can deadpan like no other. See the tick, if, if for those who haven't, which is apparently coming back, um, and and Carrie Preston is fabulous, and you know, Stacey Keach does his thing, and is always a lot of fun. It's like this, I I really like this cast, and even most of this dynamic, I think, could be a funny show. It just needs a different core conceit than. How about generations yeah. and everything? You know, it really needs better writing. So if we can just bring in some new writers or change directions and give the, the current writers a different, like some different marching orders, the, yay! There's no reason that a, this group of people shouldn't be able to make a very funny show. Yeah, and like you said, the cast, apart from like Preston and um, Warburton, are actually all like really, really solid. That was the thing that was vaguely remarkable about the uh, both of the premiere episodes was that they're all really good and they're kind of like especially like the the parents and the daughters are really clicking really hard i'm not a huge stacy keach fan um so him coming on to do his thing i was just like oh i've seen this a gazillion times and i didn't like it those times and i'm not liking it now but that's really more of a me thing than a show thing fair enough oh well the the last comedy premiere we have this week is Schitt's Creek, which came back for its second season on Pop. Now, I I think I've seen the pilot, but I don't remember it. So if I have, it doesn't really mean anything. Um, but I checked in for the second season premiere because I do know some of our regular listeners are fans of it. I wanted to, to give it a shot. And it was surprisingly difficult for me to jump in on the premiere because the characters in this, it's about a, a wealthy family who loses everything um, and except for the town of Schitt's Creek, which one of them bought on a whim as a joke, like 10 years prior, and they forgot that they had. 
Uh, so I think it's like their money guy stole all of their money. And because the money guy didn't know about it because they forgot they had purchased it, that's why they still have it. And um, this was v- is very serialized, picking up right where the previous season left off, or so I assume, based on you know what happens. Um, I-, I I could see how if I had watched the first season, I would like this. <laughs> and it has a very talented cast. Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara are the matriarch and patriarch of the family. Um, and Eugene Levy is actually working with his son, who plays his son in this. Uh, they co-created the series, as I understand it. And um, it's sort of just, it's sort of awesome and kind of off-putting to see an actual father and son playing father and son on TV because <laughs> they usually look nothing alike sure. and it's just like eerie. But it's actually kind of really cool from that front. Um, I, I, these, some of these, these characters are hard to take. So I think I would need to go back and watch some first season because I'm sure they kind of ease you into the characters a little bit more. That would be my guess. But um, yeah, so I ended up sort of middling on this. It, like, I think in theory I like it, but I need to do more research. So uh, I definitely didn't not like it, if that makes sense. It does. But um, yeah, so that, that's where I'm at with Shit's Creek. Have you seen any of this one? No, um, my carrier, um, cable carrier doesn't get pop. So I haven't seen a single second of it. Yeah, well, and then some of our Canadian listeners might be able to to chime in on this because it already, I think, like, the the whole season has aired in Canada, or at least it started in, like, January or February in Canada. So it's been airing for a while up there. Um, So if you've seen more of the season, tell me if I should, you know, do some homework and catch up uh, because it's a very full TV landscape right now, so I don't know that I'm going to prioritize it. But uh, I, I I did, you know... There are some elements here to definitely recommend it, and uh, I don't need many excuses to watch Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara being funny in something. So uh, while I might not make time for it right now, this is one I could see myself catching up with on like uh, like a slow weekend or something. Sure. But uh, I just wanted to mention Schitt's Creek. Let's move on, though, to The Carmichael Show, because I have thoughts about Fallen Heroes hmm. and the funeral. This is the first time I've run into... An episode of the Carmichael Show get being somewhat challenging for me because I disagree with their politics, um, and I'm curious if it was just me. I I had a hard time with Fallen Heroes because I felt like the show, meaning um, Gerard Carmichael, it but just the episode as a whole did not have anywhere near uh, a strong enough reaction to Bill Cosby allegedly drugged 50 women till they were out of their minds and unable to respond and violated them and raped them. I feel like they just kind of go, yeah, yeah, he raped people, allegedly. He did bad stuff, allegedly. And they, they make the girlfriend character sort of, like, say that. And But I feel like it really, really doesn't want to engage with the just how awful and terrible... And like, he, he ruined their lives. And they... They want to have this other discussion, which is a great discussion to have, but I just, I really felt like the girlfriend character is just, she's presented as this, like, hardliner, and she's raining on the parade, and she, I don't feel she's given anywhere near enough merit by the show. I mean, what, what do you what do you think? Is it just my politics getting in the way of enjoying an episode? It was, it was fascinating, because I was expect I think like you, I was expecting this episode to come out Cosby much harder than it actually did. And then, like you said, that they pivot to something else, which is discussing whether or not you can still enjoy art, basically, even if the creator has done something really terrible. 
of whether that be raping of uh, raping and drugging 55 women or um uh, engaging in vague um incestual relationship if you're woody allen well or you know raping a yeah uh, abusing a six-year-old child if you're woody allen too yeah. there's that too so i mean yeah. there's a number of things there that the show is much more interested in discussing that aspect of it uh which i thought was an interesting pivot but i also would just went it also felt like kind of a way of backing away from the central question like you said of well that's that isn't that's that's a part of this discourse but it's not the most interesting part of this discourse in a number of ways type of situation and i i'm not entirely sure why that decision was made um i'm i'm not entirely sure i'm not sure uh why that decision was made uh and i'd be curious to know why but it just felt like the episode wasn't willing to fully engage in what was quite frankly the bigger issue in the Cosby discourse was that there's enough people here to say that this happened and consistently happened. There was a history of this and to pivot away to the idea of, well, can we still enjoy this is an interesting question, but it's not the most pressing one. I think still right now, considering everything that's happening um, around him. Or then make the question not, do we go see Cosby live and actively give him money? Or instead make the question, it's TV night, are we going to watch the Cosby show? Yeah. And then you can, you know, if that's your like instigating incident, then you can have the conversation of, when I watch this show now, even though it meant so much to me as a kid growing up, all these different things, I can't divorce myself from what I now know or I believe, allegedly, he was doing at the time and did for decades after like because you you can still have that conversation of separating the art from the artist which is a very worthy conversation to have and then where is the line you know it's like if you have one character say well clearly cosby is this far across the line where exactly is i think that's a good conversation to have but when it's actively supporting the comedian himself i think that's a different like I, i don't know for me there's nuance there Right, and I think that's a fair fair nuance, and I think the show comes down pretty heavily on the favor of you can separate these things, and that's okay, because there's that moment where they discuss, basically, their favorite Cosby show episodes, and they're just like, which ones should we watch? And then it's this one where they dance down the stairs, or it's this one where they do the carving, or so forth and so on. And it's one of those things where I think the show, despite wanting to, like, air both sides which is what the show does when they engage in this type of a discourse is that they very much had like an end goal in mind which was saying this yeah which was saying it's okay to still love the cosby show and watch it now right same thing with seinfeld by the end of the episode um so i i i was i was surprised and like it was much more low-key than i was anticipating it was going to be because i i was anticipating something a lot harder and more aggressive i think than what we ended up getting i ended up actually really liking the funeral a lot more of these two episodes by contrast (laughs) no just because uh, i maybe because i had months of hearing oh they're doing a cosby episode Mm -hmm. to build up hype whereas with this one they just were like no let's just go let's go domestic violence let's go uh relationships with parents and absentee parents and what responsibility do you have to someone after they're dead yeah 
I thought, and, and, let, and let's just give David Dylan David, David Greer a dramatic show, showcase. Yeah. And, of course, he killed it. Yes, he did. Uh, no, this, I like you, um, I enjoyed this episode a lot. And I think in part because I was just kind of, I was, I was kind of like, okay, Fallen Heroes, let's see what funerals got for me. And then I was just like, oh, this is a way more interesting exploration of what you're wanting to talk about than what I got previously so yeah i was much more keen on funeral um like you said it's a really good exploration uh not exploration but showcase for uh greer's Greer's performance abilities and but it was still a really good generational type of discussion as well i mean we talk about crowded um being just like too focused on their generational conflicts and uh, so-so in my day and so-so in my day and that sort of thing. But this gets at that in a very, in a very different way. And I think that's really productive and really interesting. And it's also not the core of the show, which helps as well. Um, So yeah, no, I enjoyed how they discussed whether or not he had a responsibility to this man that he hadn't talked to in three or four years. And that time that he talked to his father his father didn't recognize him it seemed vaguely implied that he didn't know that he was talking to his son um so i enjoyed that aspect and that exploration of it and i especially like the mom coming at the end of the episode which kept the focus on david allen greer's character but also it sort of reaffirmed both greer's position but also jared's position in basically being like this guy was kind of an asshole why are you doing this and the mom comes in and is just like he was a bastard i'm here to make sure he's dead and that sort of aspect of things of it can be both and as opposed to either or which i think maybe was what both of these episodes were trying to say as like a unit if we want to think about them as a unit but i think the funeral does a better job of making it an and or as opposed to a yes or no and you know <laughs> i'm i'm almost never going to be against more nuance and against and rather than or when it comes to, you know, the, the theory and the uh, philosophy behind discussions on TV. They, these are things that I enjoy. So, yeah, it's not surprising that that was so effective for me. Um, let's move on to our last episode uh, of the week, which I hear was rather controversial, but I watched it later in the week, so I was avoiding broad city talk and that's broad city 2016 or the one with hillary clinton uh now did i just cough cough you mean the one with alan alda clearly now is did i miss there was a hullabaloo and i just missed it is that what did i hear correctly if you missed hullabaloo i missed hullabaloo because i have no idea what was happening with this you saying that there was hullabaloo was the first time me hearing that there was any a friend of mine tweeted that um uh that hillary clinton had dragged down broad city's cred but I'm also just like, no politician can actually do that. Yeah, can't <laughs> um, so be done. can't be done, especially for a show like Broad City. But yeah, no, I, what was the whole, do you know what the hullabaloo was about? I have no idea. Was it her appearing on this show? Yeah. Well, I don't know. I, I saw some tweets of um, people trying to mansplain to Abby Jacobson and Alana Glazer that actually Abby and Alana would be Bernie supporters, <laughs> which I thought was hilarious um, um, I, I, I don't buy that idea at all yeah yeah, yeah but i don't you know, i don't buy that idea at all <laughs> that was funny um so yeah I, just, I thought it was a really fun episode like you say alan alda showing up is just like the best chiropractor ever 
It's just like everyone's image in their mind of what a wonderful, you know, kind uh, family doctor should be. Well, this is just delightful. Not only that, but I, it's kind of basically how I always assumed Alan Alda was, period. Like, is, yeah, totally. Yeah, no, that's how I assume Alan Alda is. I mean, it's just like, he would be able to perfectly align your neck, get you the last reservation of the DMV, and make that haircut perfect. That's how that's how I just assume Alan Alda is. So, um, yeah, no, I um, I enjoyed this episode, even if it's an episode where you go, oh, I've seen DMV jokes a gazillion times. But it just felt funny and fresh when done through a broad city lens um, in a lot of ways, in no small part because, like, uh, she was just, like, w- walking in there because, of, like, her neck thing is, like, a zombie and I, I really enjoy, like, the idea of quarantine and that sort of thing. And I thought that was actually all really funny. And then just this idea that, oh, no, they can wait for you when you get to the DMV with appointment type stuff. So, no, I really enjoyed uh, 2016. I thought this was a really funny episode. And it was just, I enjoyed Cynthia Nixon's cameo as well. It was really, really good. And the really sharp comedy about, no, Hillary Clinton is not a witch. We have to answer that question every damn time. Every <laughs> damn time. And it's just like... This is great. I mean, I am not the biggest Hillary supporter, but I appreciated a lot of the jokes around the discourse that surrounds her. And I thought that there was a really nice lampooning of a lot of that. And I thought she I thought she was pretty good in this episode as well, as herself. I thought that was pretty solid reaction shot stuff that she was giving both of them. Uh, how did you feel about like the rest of it? No, I, I thought it was really fun. It, it was reminding me of the Hillary stuff. Was reminding me of when Oprah was on Thirty Rock. Oh, uh, that's this, a really good. That is an excellent comparison. Like I just thought they they used her and um, the characters' connection, like Alana's connection with her as a concept and everything, uh, really well. And then just like the slow mo and the winking was like hilarious and awesome at the end. So a lot of fun. They they've been on the money. With their cameos this season, like for, from Whoopi Goldberg for like uh, two seconds, uh, to to again, like you said, Cynthia Nixon and Alan Alda are really great here, as well as I think Hillary works really well, and she did a good job for her like two lines or whatever. Um, but no, I had a lot of fun with it. I thought, it, you know, like you say, it takes rather tired ground and makes it work. And I this will likely not be one that I, if I reference this moving forward at the end, like at the end of the year, it'll be like for cameos. Not yeah. for the DMV storyline, but it was a really entertaining way to do what should no longer at this point be an entertaining subplot. So, uh, well done. Yes, indeed. Very well done. Well, what wins your week in comedy and reality? Um, I'm going to give it to 2016, what we just discussed. Um, just really sharp, really funny stuff um, from Broad City this week. What about you? Um, well, I really enjoyed uh, Bob's and Venture Brothers this week. Uh, oh, Venture Brothers too. was really good this week. It was super good this week. Yeah. Um, we're going to, at least I'm going to check in with that next week for the finale. Yes. The season finale. It's already here. Oh, man. I know, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Brooklyn Nine-Nine with the kittens, like, was also really good. Uh, but but I, I think I want to give it to, yeah, I got to give it to Broad City. I was almost going to give it to, to Blackish. Sure. Which I thought was even just for the kids' awesome basketball skills. Like there were like them just dribbling and stuff like that. I could not dribble like that when I was a kid. Uh, so that was pretty impressive. No, if you're gonna give it for anything, you're gonna give it for Junior's awesome refereeing skills. 
fabulous refereeing skills. Uh, <laughs> tip of the cap to Junior. Uh, so, so I, but I, but I will. I think I will give it to to Broad City again for breathing life into that old that old tired conceit. And uh, yeah, but there's a lot of solid comedies right now. Uh, Mo also, Mo Ryan also wrote a pretty great article for Variety this past week about how we're instead of antiheroes, we're now in the age of the prestige comedy, and uh, that was that's a fun read too for anybody wondering why we are talking about so many comedies every week. It's because there's a lot of good ones. Yeah, there are. But now we're gonna take a break and come back with our week in genre and drama. My name is Jake, and I love my life. Kissing on lady, cause she's basically my wife. Fixing up Nectar, cause he fell from a tree. Catching up with Marge and Appy W.E. Marge is in a coma and she might not wake up. I'm glad you got a friend now, even though that's messed up. Take TV to the market to get him into fruits. Take a little nappy in my blanket cocoon. Wake up really early just to cook for my friends. Later in the field at night, I thought I saw death. Made myself a boat and I sailed with a whale. Took TV to the market so he could try kale. And some other stuff. This week in genre and drama, we're going to talk a little Daredevil Season 2 before diving in with Adventure Time, Flute Spell, The Walking Dead, The Same Boat, Supergirl, Falling, and then move on to the dramas. Uh, I'll have a few thoughts on the Americans premiere, Glander's. American Crime Story, The People vs. O.J. Simpson, Conspiracy Theories, Underground, War Chest, and we'll wrap things up with Limitless. Oh, man. Bezgrinichny? Bezgrinichny is what I'm going with. That sounds that sounds pretty close, and you at least managed to hit like a little bit of a Russian inflection. Yeah. There. Whereas I was just like, well, I don't know. Totally intentional. <laughs> no, yeah. Um, but we're going to kick things off this week with Daredevil, and I, I feel like a bit of a failure here. I've only seen two. It's been, as one can imagine, with a car accident uh, and an out-of-town gig, I have not had a lot of time for TV this week. I've only seen two episodes of Daredevil. How many episodes have you seen, and how are you feeling about the season so far? Uh, I managed to do four, um, so I can talk a little bit more about it. But um, I was pretty like lukewarm on season one of Daredevil, mostly from a structural level in which I didn't particularly care for their sorting algorithm of badness. Of Oh, Matt beat up this one bad guy, so he gets to level up to the next bad guy. And that was basically how the season was structured. And I found that really boring and really repetitive, which helped the fact that the acting was so on point that it like evened out for me um this season um i'm still feeling kind of vaguely lukewarm about the show um one thing i am interested in and to see if it's going forward is basically the first four episodes basically for me constitute like a story arc and where it's like punisher part one of four basically and while punisher is obviously going to come back later in the season the storyline kind of like wraps up a little bit for him in at the end of episode four and i thought that was a really interesting structural choice for them to make because it's always been one that i've wanted other comic book shows to do is like four part mini arcs as opposed to big seasonal arcs or divide your seasonal arc up into these chunks basically and so i was interested i'm interested to see how that development goes um I'm not totally like 100% on board with the third episode, which a number of people really, really liked. And I basically went, oh, that was about as subtle as a nail bat to the head. Um, but Daredevils also can do subtlety in a not, not, can do not, 
not subtle things in elegant ways. And there's nothing particularly elegant about the unsubtlety of that third episode, which is basically Daredevil and Punisher talking at one another on top of a rooftop about vigilantianism and justice and this sort of thing. And you, you will, we can talk about all of this kind of more after you've watched more of the episodes. Um, it still feel, feels like Daredevil. So if you're just like, oh, I wonder what it's going to be like with the new showrunner and all this stuff, it's still Daredevil all the way through and through from an aesthetics perspective, from um, an acting perspective, from a writing perspective. It still very much feels a piece of season one. So, yeah, um, without like getting into too much more spoiler depth, because I know I kind of spoiled a couple things for you, but I apologize. Um, how, how did you feel about the two episodes you watched? Well, that's really encouraging, actually, to hear. Um, and we're going to not have any other specifics besides that. But because I, I really liked these two episodes, um, I liked season one more than you did. Though I also felt like there it, season one felt very much like six episodes plus seven episodes um, with some, you know, the second... I, I was more interested in where Daredevil um, started than where it ended because the ending it just got more generic for me in the last episode or two whereas I was much more on board with you know the character explorations I really liked Fisk and I also really liked the prioritization of the Matt and Foggy relationship uh Mm-hmm. really that is the heart of that the the especially towards the end of the first season and that was really affecting for me so watching these first two episodes I really enjoy John Barthol as uh the Punisher I did not expect to enjoy him or really the character as much as I have so far um so that's credit to the writing and the performances and the direction um but I was sort of looking finishing two about to start three um looking forward to what three is going to bring but also sort of thinking okay, haven't we sort of done Punisher's main thing, right? His main thing is that he's Daredevil, but he kills people. Like, it's, I don't feel like there's as much layers of, like, develop. It's not like we meet Frank Castle and then he becomes Punisher. We we meet the Punisher. So I was curious how they, if they were going to follow a similar path as the first season if they were going to try to do like six episodes with Punisher I'm like how are you going to sustain that so hearing that it's actually not they're not trying to stretch that at least the initial arc between those two characters for six episodes is actually really encouraging and that is at least as far as I can tell after only seeing two uh, that's a sign of good judgment from the new showrunners um, I, I again, I I really enjoy Foggy. What we get of him, I, I appreciate any person, any character who has an appropriate level of respect for homemade baked goods, as Foggy <laughs> does. Um, and and also I like what they're giving Karen to to do as well. Um, so so I I'm more connected with these characters than I uh th- than some of the other superhero shows going. Certainly more than something like Shield which we've talked about yeah. last week. So uh, I'm, I'm on board for the whole season. I'm going to watch the whole season probably before the next time we record uh, an episode. So probably by next week, I will have seen most of this season. But um, the one thing I would like to see the show explore more, and hopefully they get into this in season two, I feel like the show is very much explored. Why does he want to beat people up? What is it about Matt that he like goes off and beats people up at night who are bad guys and he loves it, and he keeps doing it. I feel like there's been zero exploration of why is he a lawyer? Why did he want to spend all those years in school getting a law degree? What He must 
respect and love the law to some extent, or he wouldn't have done that. And I feel like that's an aspect of the character that after the first season and only the first two of season two is sorely underexplored. So I'm hoping we get more of that. Uh, do you get any of that in the next two or is that something that's going to have to come later in the season or even the season three? It's not in the next two. So I'm not he's, he's in his costume for most of he's in his costume pretty much for all of season. Oh, it's not season for episode three. So, yeah, you're not going to get it. You're not going to get a lot of it, I'm afraid. People like to compare um, Daredevil and Batman because it's like guys who put on a suit and have ninja training, basically. You know, and I mean, Daredevil's got the the super, you know, the the superpowers, but he also has a, you know, he's blind, so that theoretically evens you out. I guess I don't know. I don't, I'm not a, as one might be able to tell. I am not a super uh, knowledgeable comics person, but I think the contrast between what how does Bruce Wayne cover up like what does he do with the rest of his time he pretends to be like a a, a gadfly he like is is it does like the Oliver and, and Oliver Queen does the Batman thing I should say and they just like are rich playboys that their cover is that they do nothing because they spend all of their time doing this Matt Murdock chooses to spend the rest of his time being a lawyer and defend being a defense attorney and that should be something that is interesting like why does he do that whenever well these other characters don't um i think that is a, a fertile area to be explored so hopefully that'll happen at some point um but unless you have more on daredevil shall we move on to adventure time let's move on to adventure time because most of my thoughts about like daredevil mostly focus on the fourth episode which you haven't seen so i can't complain about it to you okay <laughs> fair enough let's talk about flute spell I don't really have much on this other than I very much enjoyed the song that kicked off this segment. Uh, what did you think of this episode? Um, I liked it. Um, I was really excited for um, Huntress Wizard to have an episode because she's, from just a design perspective, I've always liked the look of Huntress Wizard when we've seen her, the few times that we've seen her. And so I enjoyed that aspect of the episode. And I liked that we're still apparently kind of in a what how is finn coping with maturing and growing up basically and what does it mean like romance and that sort of thing with it and i think that's pretty i think that's interesting perspective for them to explore and i think flute spells an extension of that with him dealing with ideas of unconditional love um what you how love manifests basically and then just from like a geek perspective i just love that we've we had some flute spell and like magic min instruments because i immediately went to ocarina of time and all sorts of fun zelda type things uh there so yeah no it was a it was a cute fun little episode also trippy when um finn uh visited with the spirit of the forest and that weird kind of 80s moving background <laughs> Um, yeah, no, I thought it was an I thought it was an interesting interesting episode. Definitely not like the most compelling of the episodes that they've done recently, but still pretty solid. Yeah, I agree with like pretty much everything you were saying. The the like the black and red sort of floor was yeah. really cool. Um, but yeah, the last thing I guess to just to reemphasize, it's just great to on this show when the the main male protagonist likes someone, but he he doesn't. You know, it's like oh well probably why I wasn't working is I was actually playing this for you, but I know you like this other guy and that's okay. 
It's not like, yeah. oh, his, his suffering, his pain, because he is not loved. Uh, yeah, so I appreciated that a lot. It was just a, such a great, low-key, fabulous example of of that, which I feel like we almost never see. Um, so I appreciated that. Yeah, no, I agree. I think that's really the big takeaway, is that Finn's mature enough to realize that she's maybe into him a little bit, but not in that way and not in this place, not as they are both are right now. Yeah. And that's a really mature thing for any show to say, as you were saying. So the the idea that this, again, as we keep saying, this is a kid's show and they're saying really complex, mature things. And that's really impressive, I think. Yeah. Well, let's move on to The Walking Dead then and uh, the same boat. So we found out what happened with Maggie and Carol. And uh, were you appreciating... Carol, she got a lot more of a spotlight this week, as as did Alicia Witt. Right. Um, well, I'll tell you. Um, I um, texted a friend of mine who's a longtime viewer of the show as well. And I did it a couple days because I wasn't entirely sure if she had watched it already. And I basically said, so even though I, I mentioned you in the text message, and I was just like, so even though Kate explained Carol to me, I still don't have like a firm like knowledge grasp of the character. But through the episode's writing, through the performance um, from the woman playing Carol, whose name escapes me at the moment. Uh, Melissa McBride. Melissa McBride, thank you. Um, So through her performance, through direction, and through the writing, the most compelling thing about the same boat to me was the fact that Carol felt totally in control of that room the entire time. In a sense that she was... She knew more and was able to play more angles, basically, than the people who thought that they were in charge. I mean, there's always an element of unpredictability given their situation and everything, but she always felt like she was in control of what was going to happen. And that was just made for a really compelling hour of back and forth dynamics. And for me, after the whole siege on uh, the Saviors complex basically locking them in two rooms and doing a uh, you're not getting out of this and well maybe we can talk about this type of thing was a really nice juxtaposition and I really enjoyed uh, their back and forth between everyone basically and yeah no I just thought that this was a really really great episode Uh, for me anyway from someone who has a very limited perspective on the show so like always now with The Walking Dead I'm much more interested in hearing how you felt about the episode and my big question for you as someone who watched the episode was whether or not this kind of a exploration especially Paula's speech about who she was before the dead rose is that really common for this show in that people like talk about themselves and their past that in that those kind of very explicit manners or is this kind of an outlier or like so tell me how much of the same boat is something that the show routinely does or if this is kind of a more showcasey kind of episode oh you know that's very uncommon like we still okay. don't know what many of the characters did before. Like, we know mm-hmm. like, sometimes, like, we found out uh, Michonne worked at her own, I think she worked at an art gallery. Um, and so she, her, you know, we, we know, of course, uh, Rick and we know about Carol. Yeah. But as far as, like, guest characters certainly come in saying, let me monologue about my past, that doesn't happen. Um, mm-hmm. And listeners correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm that don't really recall that happening hardly ever if ever uh so it's very much you know the alicia what character she wanted to monologue 
So she monologued, uh, and it was very effective, I thought. Uh, I liked the the carrot, egg, coffee thing, and how it was delivered as well. I made that work instead of making it like an eye-rolling moment. Um, and, yeah, like you say, we know Carol's not going to get killed um, by the rules of genre TV. <laughs> so... Um, presenting this as a okay carol's got a plan as soon as she starts hyperventilating you're like carol's got a plan she's doing something she's almost convincing me that you know that that how some level of this is is real and i think that's credit to the actress um mcbride um but i know it's not but she's a really good actor even carol's a really good actor so she's almost convincing me but i know it's not true so uh you know but presenting it to the audience in this way where we there's very little suspense that they're actually going to kill either of these two characters so instead they play it as if we know that carol's controlling the room if we can tell that carol's controlling that room that makes a much more effective episode than if we're supposed to wonder whether or not you know they're going to be okay um I, i i continue to enjoy the way they're exploring her comfort or lack thereof with killing people and the cost to her to keep doing it um, the ending, even knowing that they were, you know, that they're part of the saviors and that these are not just straightforwardly good people, that was still a horrible ending. And yes, I, I appreciate that they made it horrible. Um, yeah, so so I, I continue to really be enjoying the season of The Walking Dead, and uh, yeah, I look forward to seeing kind of where it's where it's building to. Do you have any uh, curiosity about this whole we're all Negan thing um, or not really? I'm compelled by it um, in no small part because it's it's an interesting the we are all Negan or we are Negan type of perspective. I think is a really interesting, potentially interesting. I mean, it's too soon to tell. But a potentially interesting community ethos, which is, I think, kind of becoming a big... Well, you can speak to how recurring that theme is, but given the different nature of uh, the Rick's group and then the Hilltop community, and now this Negan group, um, there's this very interesting division, I think, in how communities are being structured. And I think that's going to be a particularly interesting conflict for the show to explore, even though they only have, like, what, two, three episodes left? Yeah. Um, this season. So maybe next season they can explore it a bit more. But I'm I'm compelled by that idea as whether or not the We Are Negan type of thing is how they view themselves in terms of a to throw people off the scent or if this is some sort of ethos that Negan has instilled within them as survivors and saviors for to go with their nomenclature. So no, I'm actually really interested in that. How are you feeling about it? I think I'd have a very different reaction to it if I didn't know that Jeffrey Dean Morgan had been cast to play a character <laughs> called Negan. Um, but I sure. do think it's an interesting way to play with my knowledge of that and a lot of the, the you know, viewers' yeah. knowledge of that because the, the casting news has been out for forever. So obviously 
readers of the comic book know much more about the saviors and where this is all going. But for those of us who are just sort of tangentially aware, I think it's a, a nice way to kind of throw us off the scent or, or pique our interest without having them constantly saying, who is Negan? Oh, I'll tell you right after dead. <laughs> after after I get conveniently killed by a zombie, so I can't give you any answers. Um, I think that's a, just a smart way to kind of handle that. And um, yeah, I'm just, I again, I think... The Walking Dead has been actually very good the past several years and only only gotten some of the credit it's due. But, I mean, these last few weeks, I think this has been, like, how, however many, like, five really solid episodes of TV. How are you feeling about The Walking Dead in general? Where would you rank it against the rest of the genre landscape right now? Um, I think that's kind of a difficult question for me to answer in part because I don't have, like, the full knowledge of this show's history uh, the characters histories which i think kind of softens a lot of the stuff um in and i think that a lot of it i think same boat in particular i think would work better not sorry works really well because mcbride's performance and that that's able to carry me through a lot of it and the the arc for the episode i think also helps so this idea that Carol was afraid, but afraid of how this was going to end was really big. And I didn't need necessarily you having explained Carol to me last week for me to understand that particular weight and what that was meaning for her within the confines of this episode. Um, So I think that that's really impressive that I'm able to pick up on that. But it's one of those instances where how we talk about television is kind of getting in the way of how I can answer that question. Um, it's definitely with, without like, without having like the flash on basically, this is probably the better of the genre programs I'm watching right now. Um, like it's adventure time, walking dead in the flash for me in terms of like genre programming that I'm really like keyed in on right now. Um, which is an impressive thing to say for someone who hasn't watched the show since season one. But yeah, so I'm curious to see how it continues to grow, but I'm also just petrified that the show is going to take a southward spiral because that's what happens when I start watching shows. Um, I haven't been allowed to watch Teen Wolf because people keep telling me that I'm a jinx because when I started watching The Vampire Diaries, it started to suck. And people blamed me for that. (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean... Walking Dead is a history of having really strong starts to season and seasons and then or even half seasons and then petering out by the end. So fingers crossed yeah. that, you know, and if that happens, it's not your fault, Noel. That's what they do usually. Uh, so hopefully this will not be the case um, with the second half of, of season six of The Walking Dead. But let's move on to another of those genre shows that we talk about regularly and that is supergirl falling so we had a red kryptonite episode yay red kryptonite is always a fun time unless it's tom willing on a motorcycle driving up to a high school and then it's just kind of (laughs) lame how do you feel they handled red kryptonite here was this like was it too straightforward you know she starts wearing tighter fitting clothes and is more flirty and and sassy and then she you know like did they handle it was it too stereotypical of a transition or did it work for you um I think that it really worked for me in juxtaposition to like the previous episodes. And I think that was actually, I've been kind of like frustrated with the show's like handling of basically character arcs because, well, let's face fact, James is barely a character. Um, Everything we know about him, people tell us, but he never seems to act on what people tell us. 
So the show's like handling of characters has always been just really inconsistent. Its plotting has been kind of all over the map. Um, but Kara's always just been so sharp. And just the idea that Kara wakes up from the red kryptonite poisoning and immediately asks whether or not she killed anyone is just so huge and such a really clear understanding of the fact that Kara, this is this is what the core of what Kara is concerned about, is that she didn't kill anyone while she was under the influence of the Red Kryptonite. And then the other thing I really liked is that the show, the episode did not back away from the fact that this is going to have ramifications. Her actions are going to have consequences, basically. So it's just the fact that she, she spoke truth to power when she's just like, so why is it okay for me to put myself out there, but it's not okay for Jean to put himself out there? And why can't we be more accepting of that? And I think that this idea that Red Kryptonite made her sassier and more aggressive, but it also, like, peeled back a particular type of layer. And Alex acknowledging the fact that there's a, there's a kernel of truth to th- what she was saying while under the influence of Red Kryptonite, I think was really significant for the show. And it provides, I think, a really good segue for the show to kind of explore what Supergirl means to National City as a hero, but then she does these kind of ridiculous things. And the episode's a little on the nose with the little girl putting the Supergirl outfit in the trash can. But at the same time, that opening scene where she goes to help the girl being bullied wearing the costume and, like, x-ray vision... Is so awesome! Is so awesome! Like, I let out, like, a little cheer because... In no small part because I love the market, the marketing for the sh- that the show did early on, like having uh, set photos with her hanging out with Girl Scouts, and but then the fact that that's kind of still continued, like people are bringing their daughters to meet her and like get her autograph, and they, they tweet it, and it's all publicity. But it's so cool and so great, and I'm glad that they kind of worked that into the show as like a narrative thing. Um, so no, I actually really, really enjoyed following. I didn't enjoy that. Uh, Matthew, uh, Matthew, that uh, Maxwell Lord was responsible for red kryptonite magically. Um, but no, and yeah, no. So I just really enjoyed following. I really enjoyed that uh, Benost had like a different type of Kara to play. Uh, Kara to play. Uh, not, not even like Jean playing Kara, but like a different aspect of her personality to play. And I think that all came through really well. And I think that it was built up well enough through the Siobhan frustrations and that sort of thing. I think it all just really kind of clicked in a way that I wasn't expecting. How did you feel about Falling? I'm just going to do this bullet point style because there's several things that I think are fantastic. First of all, there are immediate long-term ramifications. They changed the show. When you have an episode like this, uh, temporary insanity episode, our hero gets like affected by something and they're not responding. They do a bunch of shitty stuff, but it's not their fault for some reason. Way too often, yeah. the show just presses a big reset button. But by having Jean get outed, yeah, that can't happen. And that immediately ensures... That's the, it's like the show's way of telling us, no, for realsies, guys, this is we're not just going to pretend none of this ever happened. And I think that's really significant. So that's one. Another thing that is huge for me is that we have Kara uh, is on Red Kryptonite. And as everyone knows... Red kryptonite makes you sexy. It's a thing. It takes mousy people and makes them sexy. And the fact that James is, like, completely not into that red kryptonite Kara is 
fantastic because that's not Kara and he likes Kara. So the show, because usually, again, this is a sh- thing genre shows like to do. They take the, again, air quotes, mousy character and, you know, mind control or love spell or something. And all of a sudden people are like, hey, person that is ridiculously attractive because they're on TV and almost everyone on TV is gorgeous. Uh, I have never noticed you before, but now that you are not yourself, I will notice you. Like, So I really like that they subverted that trope and did it instantly. Mm-hmm. And then as well, in this episode, they highlight just how much control Kara needs to have all the time. She doesn't say, did I hurt someone? She says, did I kill someone? Because it would be very very easy for her to kill people. So it's an element of Superman and a Supergirl by extension that I think is really fascinating. This notion that for them, pretty much the entire world, they have to treat with kid gloves. Because it would just be really easy to like give somebody a hug and break their spine. So uh, I think the way that, again, that choice of words of did I kill somebody was significant and that's that was part of the subtext for me there's a lot more to like about this episode as well um for me the downside of having maxwell lord involved is is tempered by the upside of not having it just be random chance that they happen to have red kryptonite show up sure so, so there was that um but uh in general i you know the the complication of the cat uh, of the cat grant relationship with supergirl i think is is good and also i really like that last scene and this like sort of awareness that cat definitely has by the end of this episode if she didn't previous that she is very much a mother figure to supergirl she doesn't know why but supergirl but 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 you know supergirl has adopted her and um and she is very significant to supergirl and that sort of it was almost like there was a raised eyebrow like an, a subtextual raised eyebrow from Callista Blackheart during that scene that I thought was really interesting um so there's just a lot about this episode that I that I liked even if I didn't love it as much as some other people did sure my big takeaway from all of that is I can't wait for us to eventually circle back to Justice League Unlimited um, in no small part because there's a big Superman speech that basically addresses what you said about the killing aspect and I, I can't wait for you to hear it. Um, no, okay. um, no, I think you're really on point um, about all of this, uh, especially the cat stuff, which is, I mean, that's going to be huge going forward. I mean, she threw her off a building and cat um, having to go on her television stations and denounce Supergirl is kind of a big deal. And so, like you said, this is going to have, like, big ramifications going forward. And I'm actually excited for there to be interesting ramifications going forward. I think is, like, the key idea is that I'm actually interested in what's going to happen as a result of this episode. As opposed to something like the Toy Man episode where I just went, oh, so we're going to shade Wynn a little bit and he's going to be kind of, he's going to have to work through some stuff. But the other problem is I just don't care about Wynn or james or I, I i don't care about either of them so that kind of an aspect to the show is something i'm not interested in but these are ramifications that i feel like i am invested in mainly because they just deal with kara who she is and how she wants to be and i think those are two really significant things to the show and those are the two things i'm most invested in the, another significant thing happens this this week and that's that siobhan gets fired yes um 
in a very a very hard a harsh way. Yes, shall we say? So that will come up again for those who don't know anything about the comics, <laughs> and that's another example of the show ensuring that this episode has long-standing effects. Yeah, and. Yeah, I'm on board for that. Let's move on to the dramas, and the, we're going to kick things off here with the Americans. I just wanted to mention how, because I didn't want to spoil it last week, so I love, love, love that Philip is still going to ask, and that they that was how they decided to keep uh, uh, Sandra around. I, that dynamic was really great. And watching when Philip decides to tell Martha versus Elizabeth about the fact that he's going to ask and what that means to him... Um, and it was really interesting, and yeah, I just I love this show. Um, but we're we're already running long, like we always do. So I'm gonna just kind of cap it there, and and have more about the Americans next week. Um, oh, Dylan Baker's awesome, and that bubble wrap. Oh my god, can you imagine the people who watch the Americans? No, has no idea what I'm talking about, but can you imagine? Okay. Um, <laughs> next up is American Crime Story, uh, the conspiracy theories, and I, I'm just glad to be watching this at the same time as everybody else at this point um what did you think of the big glove episode um once again it's just a really good episode of tv um i think the big thing with uh conspiracy theories is and with also like the two previous episodes marsh 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 and the race card um this episode is much more of a macro level episode whereas the other two were very micro character portraits basically and so this kind of shift in perspective, I think, was really welcomed. But also, I think it really tuned in the show's approach to how they're dealing with this trial is they're taking this kind of a big issue of whether it's race, femininity, or in this case, this idea of conspiracy theory and everything that goes into the idea of a conspiracy theory and exploring what that means in America in the 90s but also by extension now, because let's face facts, a lot of this is still super relevant today. And using this case to explore these larger issues, I think has just been really fascinating. It's really come into focus within the past three episodes. And Conspiracy Theories continues that, is this idea of, well, if OJ didn't do it, then who did and how? And this sort of process, uh, like that, that, that just tour de force scene in the bar of her taking down this idea of a conspiracy theory was just terrific and really interesting to watch that play out. But then by extension, you get the conspiracy theory of trying to find evidence and basically this idea that even like the prosecution's idea of how to um, <clears throat> draw in a little showmanship and do this is still kind of a conspiracy theory because they need the gloves to fit. And if the gloves don't fit, then the entire thing just kind of falls apart. And I, I just, I, it's just all really interesting. And I liked the buildup and the goading into the, um, cons into making him, into Darden, like, putting the gloves onto OJ and that sort of thing. No, I just, I really enjoyed the episode. And I was very, very happy with it. How did you feel about it? Oh, I thought it was great. I thought it was really good. Um, and like you said, to get back to a larger perspective, I think was, the timing of it worked really well. Um, I loved the stuff we got with um schwimmer uh, oh god Kardashian. wasn't he great this week so good and it was again the timing is what i keep coming back to the we hadn't had that kind of a scene with him yeah in forever since like episode like two three something like that yeah um and so 
coming back to him and, and, and returning to you, this is a guy who really wants to think that OJ didn't do it, but he needs something he can hold on to. So he can hold on to the glove. He can, you know, convince himself that it's not just that it shrank, which can happen, or that OJ had another glove on underneath it, or that OJ didn't want it to fit. Um, he needs anything to hold on to. I, that, that scene with the suitcase was fantastic. And um, yeah, that was really, again, kudos to the writers um, for bringing Robert Kardashian back to the forefront at this point in the narrative. Um, that, like you said, the bar scene was great. And um, the, I think it's also, they also were with this episode trying to make a really concerted, it's not all Marsha's fault. Yeah. <laughs> um, Which statement. is good. You know, so they're, you know, it's, Martha not wanting to have this witness or that, sorry, Marsha not wanting to have this witness or that witness um, because, you know, it's beneath them to take, have witnesses who also, who went to the media, you know, which hurt their case. Um, so, so splitting the blame here a little bit, even though according to the actual Marsha Clark, she said that she doesn't think the, the glove thing was as big a deal as the rest of us make it out to be. Ha! Um, I thought it, narratively it works well. Um, and I mean, I mean, are you invested in the shipping of it, of it all? I mean, at the, that hotel room, right? Just me? Yeah. I mean, ah, yeah, I know it's not just me. Twitter is a gog with people shipping actual people, like fictionalized versions of actual people and feeling weird about it. Yeah, no, hours, I'm feeling but... weird about it too. I'm just like, I mean, I can understand like circumstances and that sort of thing playing out, but it's just like I am not shipping them at all. Like, I mean, I'm very invested in them as like professional friends, basically, for want of a better word. And that her basically entering his world for, is just like a is kind of a big step for both of them. And but it doesn't necessarily mean romance as much as they like kidded uh, uh, him about it. Um, it doesn't mean that. And I mean, yeah, so no, I, I'm not. I, yeah, no, that's, that's weird. No, I'm not doing that. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, well, any final thoughts on American Crime Story or should we move on to Underground? No, we should move on to Underground. Uh, how did you feel about this week's episode, War Chest? I liked it a lot. Um, again, it, it I think... I feel like there's... The, the tone is something that's a little tricky for me because we have... Um, as part of the plan, part of the plan is for one of the guys on the team to get raped. Um, and they're, they're a bit too cavalier about it, uh, but, um, like it makes sense for Noah to have that perspective, to be hardened to that experience, seeing as this is something apparently he's experienced many times. Um, but I, f I feel like the show is, they're p playing it as a joke. And it makes sense maybe for Noah to play it that way, but the I had a little trouble with that. Yeah, I part can of see it that. because they're so going into the heisty kind of feel of it. We yeah. can't have like the horrible trauma of being raped as part of the plan, you know. Um, and I'm not going to say more about that because uh, yeah, okay, yeah. I mean, it's spoilers, so I'm not. I'm going to stop myself there. Um, but I do think that on the whole, this was. Uh, yeah, there's more agency in even in someone, you know, trying to take this bad situation where they know that this lady is going to rape one of them. Um, and so let's take 
some power back and use that opportunity to do something. And and that also goes to our you know the our, our heroes on the trying to start their underground railroad career. Um, as well, taking some agency back from a situation where they're they're shut in. So I, you know that aspect of the episode I thought worked well on the whole. I had a lot of fun with this one. What did what did you think? Um, no, to like bounce off your point with um, it's actually really interesting um, concerning the rape is that it's actually played fairly seriously up until the moment where it's revealed that that she wants Cato, and it's just like oh. And now, and then, like, it pivots really quickly into a joke, as you said. And it's just like, oh, okay, well, all right, fun. No, no, it's 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 not funny. And it, like you said, it's a weird, like, tonal issue that I think the show is still really grappling with. Um, uh, for the married couple, I was still, I liked this much more than I liked last week's, um, use of them where, like I said, I just felt like they're ridiculous and extraneous to the show. Um, I don't feel they're as extraneous now, but I'm also still like, they're still the least interesting aspect of the show, uh, for me. Um, so, but I enjoyed that they managed to show that they have something to offer to the cause apart from, Oh, you've got a house by a river. Well, that's really handy for us. Thanks. But no, so that they, they're aware of like how they can, respond to a situation and think through a situation and it also allowed them to see that the law isn't like an end-all be-all recourse which i'm sure that they're aware of but they still they're on the wrong side of the right law even if the law is in place at this point because it's not as respected and i think that's an interesting conflict for them to explore as a show and they can do that through those characters but yeah, no, the rest of the episode was just still really good. I enjoyed, like, random bits of suspense with the cart, with the junkyard cart dealer, um, and whether or not they'd be able to get the jug with the paper and all that sort of stuff. And I enjoyed that aspect. And the kind of wild cardness of Cato um, makes things a little more interesting. Um, even if it feels like the rape is almost payback in a way for how he handles the cart issue at least like i think that's kind of the connection that we're supposed to make in a way uh, based on the comment that oh and i just remembered she prefers the younger the lighter skinned fellows and it's just like oh oh i see how that goes and that sort of thing so i think that that was an element of it as well and it like you said it just doesn't totally click but it's still a show that's clicking overall, which I'm excited about. Uh, I think the only other big takeaway for the episode for me was the speech um, about, yes, I've in, I have imagined a thousand different lives, and this is how they could all have been worse, is kind of a really powerful moment for the show to acknowledge in the sense that I could not be with you. I could be someplace else. I could be dead. You could be dead. All this sort of stuff. And I think that's a really big correct not not a correction but a nuance yeah very i feel i think it's really important yeah and that perspective of the mom to be like shut your mouth shut your face because you have no idea of how much worse or you might but you mean she's still it's like you're still too young to know just how much worse our situation could be yeah um and until you're a mother you won't understand that yeah truly um so i think it was an important note to to put in there especially when you have your 
protagonist, um, one of your main protagonists, in a comparatively privileged position, being one of the the, the slaves who's working at the house rather than in the field, who it's implied the first time she's ever been whipped was what we saw. Yeah. Um, so I think that was an important distinction to make. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And yeah, I, I, I'm still really interested to see how underground like develops. Um, I know I said that I was going to maybe watch ahead, but I actually haven't had time to watch ahead. Um, so yeah, so I'm still like on the week. Um, so yeah, so that's, that's, yeah, I'm still really keyed into underground. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, that takes us to our last episode of the week and that is limitless. Gotta try this again, guys. Bis Grunnenschni, um, which again I probably said wrong, but we got you know we got our answer to what is Brian gonna do uh, when he takes off. So were you pleased with this episode? Um, not as pleased as I was expecting myself to be, actually. Um, I like again, like I said last week, that the show's like slowly pulling all the threads around the web, so it's like getting really tight. Um, but I I just felt like this episode was kind of a little bit of a wash in a lot of ways. Um, mainly the fact that I just felt like the Russian stuff wasn't as compelling as I thought it was going to be. Um, even if I did enjoy Brian and Piper's week of trying to figure this out and Brian's idea of, well, we're, we're good without the NZT, right? I mean, look how look how great this week has been for us without the NZT. And look what we did when we were focused on something. And I thought that was a really good moment for him. And then I really liked the counterpoint of, no, who we are when we're on NZT is us. That's who we are. That's who we should be. And that's who we are. I thought that was a, that was a really big moment. But I felt like a lot of the other stuff uh, surrounding, like, breaking into the guy crashing the guy's party, playing an instrument to distract them, and that sort of stuff. I was just like, eh, kind of, eh, type of stuff. Um, but, I mean, the rest of it I thought was actually a little more interesting in the U.S. So, Rebecca finding out that Sands was the one who was in the uh, safe house was just like, oh, great, that bomb's gone off. I can't wait to see what happens next. And... The big, the only other big takeaway for me with this episode was the fact that, once again, Brian's trying to fix everything uh, to the best of his ability. And, I mean, I enjoyed him sending an email and, like, trying to check in and saying, no, I'm fine, I met a girl, I'm just spending some time with her type of thing. And just, like, you can't do that, you need to come back right now. And uh, Brian's family being like, uh, no, we're, we're not having anything to do with you guys anymore. Bye! Uh, I thought it was also really big, but I mean, it's also just kind of isolates all of Brian's support groups. And yeah, so more mixed than I was expecting to be on this episode. Uh, how did you feel about it? I had fun with it. Um, I think I liked it more than you did. Uh, but, uh, you know, I was definitely really keying into the emphasis on NZT as just another drug. The The notion of Brian just trying to live and uh and and being them being happy with that where and her needing you know like the 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 way that they shot that and the performances from both actors really feels like yeah but take another hit baby um and the the show especially coming you know in an episode where we have and right immediately after an episode where we had such a strong emphasis on what did you do to our son you've turned our son into a drug user. Like the last time we saw you, you said he was a drug user and a murderer. 
and what's going on and we don't trust you and everything. So like playing up that element of it's not as far off as maybe we would be comfortable with it being and Brian would be comfortable with it being. He's not as far off from a, uh, yeah, from a, like from cocaine or heroin or other really addictive drugs. Um, and is it getting worse? And can we, tr- like I, when she was giving him that NDT pill, I was like, you don't know where that's from. You don't know if it's, if it's pure, if it has some other like terrible side effect, what do you, you know? And I don't know if you were having that experience, but I certainly was like, you don't, how, how well do you really know this, this woman? Um, and the show just has a very different feel when it's not Mike and Ike and Rebecca giving him the pills. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I, I did not anticipate that aspect of it, but that was definitely a strength of, of the episode for me. Um, and like you say, um, Rebecca figuring out that it's Sans, I actually was kind of expecting that to happen at the end of the previous episode. I didn't expect Rachel to just like not tell them <laughs> that it was Sans um, until the end of this episode, but I'm certainly looking forward to where that is going to be heading in the next episode. So yeah, I'm looking forward to the rest of this arc. Yeah, me too. And I mean, hey, we got a season two like you told me last week, so I'm so excited. <laughs> well, what wins your week in genre and drama, Noel? Um, I'm going to give it to the same boat, The Walking Dead, this week. Um, just, um, I love bottle episodes, uh, so that helps. But um, also just a really impressive feat for me, for someone who hasn't watched the show, for me to watch that and not know that character very well and to watch that and go... She's in control of this the entire time, and just the fact that the show is able to convey that on a number of different levels is just really, really impressive. And so, same boat for me. Uh, what about you? Uh, I'm going to give it to the Americans premiere, but uh, honorable mention to Walking Dead and also American Crime Story, as as we almost always say. Yeah, very, very solid episodes of all three, and um, I very good, more than solid. Very, very, very good episodes of all three. And certainly it's been a lot of fun. Um, yeah. I'm glad that you're enjoying Walking Dead. I was a little nervous when you started watching it. That I was like, oh, no, he's going to watch the show because I'm watching it and he's going to hate it. And it's going to be a, you know, my fault that he's wasting his time. So I'm glad that you're actually connecting with the show. Me too. And even if I did, even if I had hated it, I would have probably watched it through like the end of this season just so we could discuss it. And then I would have been like, I'm done. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, yeah, so I'm glad, glad that you've been enjoying it, at least so far. Uh, we'll see what happens with the end of the season. But that wraps up our week in TV. So a few show notes here. You can find a post-up for this episode at theteleverse.org, which is the website for the podcast. Um, please stop by, leave a comment on the episode post, and let us know what you thought of the week's TV. Um, you can also email theteleverse at gmail.com. You can find us on iTunes, where we have an M4A chaptered feed and an MP3 unchaptered feed. And they both showed up last week. So hopefully that was just like a one-week flu with uh, the MP, uh, the M4A being messed up. So fingers crossed. We would very much appreciate a rating or review there if you uh, have the availability and the, t- the, the time to just go over. That does help other people find the show. Um, you can also find us on Facebook where you can like the page and set up a conversation as well as we are both on Twitter. I am at the Televerse and Noel, you are? At Noel RK. And you can find my writing at the AV Club. You can find Noel's writing at TV.com. Uh, though, again, your shows are on hiatus 
this week. Enjoying your freedom? Oh, God, it's been so great. I really did not need shows to be on this week, and they were not on, and I'm so happy. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, we do hope to hear from some uh, some more of you guys this week. Uh, leave your, like I said, leave your thoughts any of those numerous ways we can be reached. But now we are going to take a break, and I'm going to come back with Jason Griffin, the TV-aholic uh, from TV Times 3, the TV Times 3 podcast, to talk about Northern Exposure. This one's for you, Carl. I'll be right back after this. back with the televerse this is kate kalzik and i'm joined this week at the dvd shelf by a friend of the show and special request for this dvd shelf from the tv holic and tv times three it's mr jason griffin jason welcome back to the podcast thanks for having me back Kate. now this is a a first for the podcast we have a special request from one of our listeners the the wonderful my vogon poetry carl everybody knows carl all all the podcasts (laughs) love carl all the tv podcasts um, and he wanted us to talk about Northern Exposure, and he specifically wanted you to come on and talk about it with me. So, unfortunately, Noel was not able to join us this week, but we will be talking Northern Exposure. Hopefully, you will enjoy the conversation, Carl. Hopefully, all the other Northern Exposure fans out there will enjoy the conversation. I have many thoughts. I'm very torn, but I liked the show. It was my first real exposure to it. Um, what's your relationship with Northern Exposure? My relationship with Northern Exposure is I watched it when it was on. It was one of my favorite shows at the time, sort of that can't-miss TV, where I was there in front of the TV when it was on or setting the VCR to be able to record (laughs) it. Uh, Yes, back in the heady days of the early 90s. So it was weird going back and watching some of the episodes because really I haven't really watched any of it since... I watched it when it was on. So I'd sort of built up, you know, sort of my own remembrance of it and how much I enjoyed it at the time, even though I hadn't really seen any episodes in a couple of decades, you know? Yeah, the show premiered in July of 1990 as a mid-season show. Um, so it was only like eight episodes the first season. Second season, again, came back for like seven episodes. And then they started like the normal... 22 23 24 episode seasons after that it ran for six seasons but um but no i was this was i was too young for another exposure (laughs) i was five (laughs) debuted um so because it's not streaming we had we had to go old school listeners we had to legit i I went to several libraries to hunt down dvds like we had to find hard copies of dvds because it's not streaming anywhere online and i think that is a really key element to why this show isn't more talked about because the people that I know who watch it while it was on remember it really, really fondly. But I think there's a lot of people, including myself, who like have heard positive things and would probably love this show who we don't have access to. If you don't happen to have a library that has these episodes, then unless you're paying hundreds of dollars, you're not getting them. 
yeah, unless you're buying the DVDs or, uh, or I suppose you could still, if you were paying the extra fee or whatever to Netflix, you could get the DVDs that way. Yeah, it's one of those things. Uh, it's all about the music mm-hmm. that uh, is part of the part of the problem with that type of thing. Is you know, these days they make those type of deals so they know all this stuff so they can stream it, do all you know, sell it into all kinds of places uh, later on. Uh, music was a big part of Northern Exposure. Even the stuff on DVDs doesn't have all of the music that was originally in the episodes. That's part of why it's not on streaming because they can't get the rights to some of that stuff. And then, but it would make a, I think it would be something that people would be interested in watching, uh, you know, sitting down and watching a whole bunch of episodes in a row, like on Netflix or something like that. Just go, I own the first season on DVD, but I went like you to the library as a place to find later seasons. And yeah, Seattle. King County is a is a big place, but they only had, you know, like five to eight copies of each season in the this area. And they were all, for the most part, like had like 30 or 40 people waiting in line to, yeah. to, to get them. So there is some interest in, you know, in the show. And it's just kind of actually sad in this day and age when you think about it, there's so many options. Yet there's still so many things that you still can't see, really, yeah, or or more difficult than they really should be. I would recommend to people if you and we're gonna we haven't actually talked about this show yet. We'll get there, <laughs> but I would recommend to people if if what we say in this segment intrigues you, go to especially if you have like a um, a half price books or like a used DVD kind of place or uh, uh, online get the by the first season it's only eight episodes so i was finding it like the 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 used uh dvd or books store by me had it for 10 bucks spend 10 bucks on that first season and then if you don't like it you can sell it back for at least get some of your money back but if you probably will like it and then you can make you know decide if you're going to take the effort to go hunt it down i also the libraries by me uh had copies but uh, with lots of holds, and which is why this segment is happening in March and not in January when we started planning it. Um, but um, and, and I had to like there was one copy that was getting I I was a day late turning it in and there was already another hold on it on the one that I had to return. So um, yeah, so, so I would say by the first season. And then you can decide how you want to proceed from there. And and the, I mean, it does so much does come down to the music rights because one of the main characters uh, is a DJ, and the, every episode pretty much is narrated by him. Is the philosophical kind of DJ character, and there's a lot of music throughout. So you know, it can't. It's one of those things where you can't necessarily divorce the music from the show and have it still feel the same. I think it really does contribute to the, the tone of the show, the feel of the show. Um, but like a show like Freaks and Geeks, that's why Freaks and Geeks is so expensive on DVDs because of the music that's also, you know, in a similar time when it came out. And a show like WKRP in Cincinnati, who knows when that will ever become available. I would love to DVD shelf it, but the music is so far making that impossible. So, um, yeah, I, I think people should just... If they're intrigued by what we have to say here in a few minutes, they should just buy the first season. What do you think, Jason? Yeah, I, I think it's it's well worth it, you know, especially if you can find it for, you know, even if you're spending the, you know, like 14 or 15 bucks on getting it new, 
that's still only a couple bucks an episode. That's what they charge for an episode at iTunes or Amazon video anyway. So it's not like supremely overpriced. And like you said, if you end up not liking it, then you just take it to your half price, you know, bookstore and uh, sell it back. And then it only costs you like a dollar an episode to, (laughs) to watch it. Well, for those who don't know, Jason, what is Northern Exposure about? Well, it's basically a fish out of water story. Uh, where you have uh, Rob Morrow playing uh, Dr. Joel Fleischman, uh, who uh, made a deal with the state of Alaska to have them, they paid his tuition to go to medical school. And to repay that, all he had to do was spend four years in Alaska, uh, you know, being a doctor. And he thinks he's going to be in Anchorage. (laughs) Yeah, he thinks he's going to be basically in Alaska, but in a, a city, uh, and when he gets there, he finds out that that the state had basically made too many of these contracts and they didn't need him at the hospital that he was was going to be at. And but then he says, but we have uh, we're going to send you out to what they call the Alaskan Riviera. <laughs> I love that every time it, it pops up uh, to the uh, town of Sicily. Once he gets there. He finds out that he's locked into uh, that contract. And if he breaks it by leaving, he then now owes all of that, you know, hundred plus thousand dollars that it costs to go to medical school. And so he basically ends up stuck in this small little town uh, full of uh, quirky and odd characters. Uh, Population 615. (laughs) Slightly different from Anchorage. Yeah. (laughs) And, the, you know, the first episode, I, I really enjoyed watching the first episode again and seeing basically how he just slowly gets sucked into having to be in this little town and, uh, you know, starting by getting to Anchorage and then taking this bus trip that goes on forever and ever uh, and then just being left by the side of the road at a bus stop that's just out in the middle of nowhere. And when they get into town, he's like, this is the town. It's basically it's a one street you know, little with a few businesses on either side. And, you know, then people live sort of in the outskirts around it. And uh, it's quite the, you know, it's quite the culture shock for uh, this doctor from New York City. Yeah. So then you have the traditional, you know, with any fish out of water, you have the outsider brought in, but you have the, the, the quirky residents of the town. Like what kind of people live in this tiny town in Alaska, it's people who were born there or it's people who had a very specific reason for wanting to live in the middle of nowhere. And so that opens the door to a lot of colorful characters. They have a very prominent will they, won't they with uh, uh, Dr. Joel and, um, and Maggie, the uh, Maggie O'Connell, who's a bush pilot and does like air taxis and other things like that. And is also his landlord. Um, so there's that fuels quite a bit of uh, the dynamic in the, the the season, you know, the most of the seasons, most of the run of the show, we'll get into that. Yeah. Uh, but then you have uh, a young John Corbett is the DJ. Barry Corbin is the Maurice, who's a retired astronaut who has basically like built up this town. Um, and there's a bunch of other interesting characters. I mean, I love, Ed, who is basically <laughs> Abed, you know, but in 1990, like I, it was, it was so stunning to me as I watched these early episodes. Wait, went, wait a second. This just is Abed. Yes, that's a good, that's a good comparison. But yeah, he was definitely a favorite character because 
he lived in this small town. He he's like a teenager. He's like eighteen, something like that. Yeah, but he was the only thing he really knew of the rest of the world was from watching TV and movies, and so he relates everything, you know, to various TVs, you know, TV shows and movies and stuff like that. That uh, including like doing a scene from. Uh, what is it? I think uh, Saint Elsewhere or something like that, because Joel's a doctor, and so he mm-hmm. starts doing doctor speak, which is, I believe, it's it's kind of a a funny call out because the creators of this show were the creators of that show, and uh, so just uh, yeah, lots of lots of interesting characters. You know, he had the also the the owner of the bar and his very young girlfriend. Yes, he's in his sixties. <laughs> She's like just out of high school. Yeah, <laughs> she's. She's uh, 18 and has uh, and and won the Miss Northwest Passage or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have them, and then you have uh, Marilyn, who's the hilarious um, secretary <laughs> the, nurse, yeah, like the secretary or receptionist slash yeah nurse uh, works at the doctor's office. The whole first episode, <laughs> Fleischman just keeps saying, "There's not a job here. There's no job," and she just keeps doing it. She just. Keeps doing the job. I think that's really the main group of characters. Well, you have some of the other people that pop up, like uh, the lady that runs the the store yeah. slash library slash post office slash you know uh, various things in the small town. Yeah, that, that's that's Ruth Ann. She's the the last of the regulars. But then you have recurring figures like Adam, who is like there's the town Sasquatch sort of, but he's actually a culinary like whiz who lives in the middle of nowhere. Um, with his wife Eve, for reals, these guys, uh, who's a hypochondriac. Like there's, there's, like any of these shows that's built around a small town. There are recurring figures that just get fleshed out more over time. Um, after the show was a really big success, Rob Morrow decided he wanted to go do movies, uh, and so yes. he did his damnedest to get out of his contract. Uh, event like which basically broke the show. Um, be- because they ended up having him go to an indigenous village so that they could fill all- film all his stuff uh, and just have all the regulars just kind of drive out to visit him so that you have, like, one scene per episode for a while. <laughs> and and then he just is gone in, the like, the last chunk of, of the last season. And the show did not come back after that. I mean, like, it's it's such an odd end to the show. It really, really is. Um. Yeah, because the end of the show is almost really episode 102, I think it is, which is like episode 15 or something of the final season. And that's when Rob Morrow's character is, you know, leaves the show officially. But then you still had another like 10 episodes of the show before they got to what ended up really being the series finale. And then it didn't come. It didn't come back. Yeah, it was it was back there at the time where he had, you know, had done relatively well or a couple of movies that he'd been in had done had done well and decided he wanted to be a movie star much like uh, David Caruso or others before him mm-hmm. <laughs> or, or around the, the same time it didn't exactly pan out like uh, hoped and then ultimately ended up on CBS doing a long-term procedural yep. uh, 10 years <laughs> later <laughs> that, that ran hey. for that ran forever itself yes that's uh, number three years <laughs> But uh, but yeah, it's so it's just sort of weird. It's just odd. Like like Maggie isn't even in the last episode. The female lead of the show also not in the last episode of the show. I don't know why, but she's like, unless I, I maybe I just I only saw clips of that one. But 
She's in the she's in the last episode of the show at the very end. She's in the closing montage. She she's in the uh it was also the weird I I had forgotten about it because it's been so long and I actually would almost need to go back and watch like the whole like final season but somewhere in the final season Maggie and Chris John mm-hmm. Corbett's character all of a sudden out of nowhere are a thing they become a thing they sort of break up or whatever and then she shows up at the end of the episode and she hasn't really left or something and then basically i think the final episode closes out with like lots of people dancing including them dancing together so you're supposed to be like okay chris and maggie got together and that's and you're just like but it's such a weird thing since they spent so much time with the show of the you know the will they won't they with maggie and joel uh and then they had the you know, the episode where he finally leaves and he's like, come with me. And she's like, you know, Manhattan's not really the place for me. This is where I belong. And he's like, well, I got to go there. So we'll pass off the love interest duties to the other hot guy, <laughs> to the much hotter guy, let's be honest, we're on the show. Gonna, and we're yeah. just going to pass it off over here. So we still have some sort of uh, some sort of thing going on there. Because to replace the doctor, they brought on Paul Provenza and... Mm-hmm. And Terry Polo as his wife, uh, so there wasn't any, like, will they, won't they there or anything new to to bring to that. They went a completely different direction with the, you know, the replacement doctor. Uh, but yeah, it, was, it's, it is one of those sort of sad things because it was the show itself, as there started to be problems with, you know, him wanting to, it was like, it was still doing really well. You know, it was being nominated and winning awards and... <laughs> all kinds of things at the time and uh, probably probably could have ran longer than it did had that not happened. Yeah. Well, I will give them credit though, that the way, though it's very odd the way that the show ends, just like, cause I watched, I watched uh, the last several episodes kind of waiting for, cause I watched the one where um, Chris is starts doing lucid dreaming to try to really figure out how he feels about Maggie. And I expected that episode to end with them like together, but nothing definitive. So I'm like, okay, so then does that happen in the, nope, does not happen in the finale. Like just like between the scenes somewhere, they're like, they officially become a thing or they just don't feel like talking about it. But what I do appreciate is that they take a very different approach with that dynamic than they did with Fleischman and O'Connell, which I think is really very smart. Um, but yeah, it's just it's just odd. The, you can just see the seams so much of the behind the scenes friction causing issues on the show. Um, but I think that, that that's just an unfortunate element to how the show ends. I think we should talk about some stuff that does work. And on a big part of the show that we haven't even discussed yet is well, I guess we tangentially with Ed, but they do all this really great surrealism in this show. Uh, where where the Ed will just imagine a scene like I don't know if you watched the uh, episode um, that has this where he's trying to write his script and so we get a scene from Indiana Jones with Maurice and and Chris as the the guy with the sword and the duel you know but then it becomes a different scene and then it becomes a different scene like they get all these different um, cinematic and and TV homages and like full black and white stylized pieces they have uh you know, dr uh, or rabbi shulman will appear to joel to you know help him with his problems um ed's got a spirit guide who shows up um one who waits um yeah it, it, he, he's native uh native alaskan we should say 
um, as is as is Marilyn, but um, they're both Native American characters, which is actually really really cool. But there there will be these just complete surreal flights of fancy in it in, in in a way that really gets the show compared to Twin Peaks by some. But I think it's much less of Twin Peaks and much more of a if Gilmore Girls they talked a lot slower and there was surrealism. <laughs> oh, how did you connect to those, to those surreal elements? They were a real highlight for me. Did they work like that for you or were you more interested in like the characters? Yeah. Well, I remember uh, stuff like that. And I'm trying to think of some of that type of stuff in the episodes that I got to rewatch here over the last week. You know, like they did do an episode. I think it, is it the one that's somewhere along the line? Uh, it may have been the last episode that that Moro was on but it becomes a whole dream sequence where he wakes up and he's in New York and but he's married to uh Shelly mm-hmm. and 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 uh Maggie's like their au pair you know <laughs> their kids and and you know sort of go through this whole this whole dream sequence type thing or uh, also in like that final episode that he was on they're in they're on like this quest where they run into various people along the way and have to like solve puzzles and uh, including like uh, solve a riddle from Adam uh, to be able to unlock the bridge so that they can continue on their journey. There was always these weird things uh, that sort of came out of uh, uh, nowhere or the episode that I just uh, watched the season, uh, the season one finale, there's like the full moon and uh, Northern lights and all this stuff. And everybody's just, in the town is just like having trouble sleeping and everybody's schedule is off. And, you know, Ruth Ann is, you know, eating dinner for breakfast and, you know, and Chris's whatnot. unknown brother yeah, <laughs> shows up. Un- yes. His black uh, brother. This one guy that just shows up. I love that scene. Ed's like, you're black. And he's like, yeah. He goes, we used to have a black logger up here. He left. <laughs> but he left. What happened to him? I don't think he liked drinking and fighting. <laughs> you know, like, uh, but yeah, he just shows up and then you go through the whole episode where you just see like they're saying like the exact same thing. They're doing like the exact same, you know, mannerisms and stuff like that. And it isn't until they finally uh, pull out a picture of their father that they realize it's the same person. Uh, but he was just, you know, he had just had some sort of weird dream and decided to quit his job and, and ended up in Sicily, Alaska on a motorcycle trip. Uh, and it ended up being quite the trip uh, <laughs> overall. But it was always those type of weird things that would happen. And then you always had the other side where Fleischman was always like the, you know, by the book, the scientist, you know, always dealing with things like, you know, medicine men and people believing in all these different types of things uh, and including like in one episode uh, where he gets sick and they all, they're all telling them that everybody gets this and he's trying to figure out like what actual disease that he has. And they've got all these home remedies and stuff that they want him to try, but he wants to stick to like his, you know, what he thinks, but ultimately the only thing that gets him through it is doing what everybody else does yet. He still doesn't quite believe that, it's a this like made up sounding disease is like a thing that happens to everybody in the town at some point. Mm-hmm. So there was always that back and forth between the mysticism or various different uh, religious aspects or things. And then him as the doctor and 
you know, man of science that didn't believe all this, you know, sort of mumbo jumbo. More than didn't believe it, but like actively rebels against yeah. it, you know? Uh, and that, that can lead us into uh, talking about Joel a bit because uh, there are certain elements of the show that I think are fantastic that I really appreciated seeing. One of them, like I said, was that two of their main characters are Native American um, and always treated as distinct individuals. And like every now and again, there'll be a little of reliance on maybe some mysticism, you know, but on the whole, they're, they're, I think at least they're really interesting and fun and dynamic individual characters. Uh, also, the show is beautifully for like ahead of its time uh, with depictions of, of gay people. The town you find out in this full episode that's devoted to like all like a retelling flashback thing was founded by was really saved or became what it was and was founded by a, a lesbian couple who shaped took this like kind of rough and tumble terrible kind of place to live and made it a center for acceptance and the arts and uh and taller and really brought out the best in all the people who were there um and even though maurice has like his own story for how (laughs) yeah of how he totally did it yeah no yeah there's that too how the town came about and and who those two ladies really were (laughs) well and it also had one of the first uh gay weddings on tv in the fifth season with two other characters who show up um, in season, I want to say three, two or three, to, uh, to open a bed and breakfast. They, they eventually get married on the show, too. Uh, so it's actually, in certain ways, it's very progressive. Um, and really, I was very happy to see these elements. However, I run into trouble with Joel a lot. And I'm curious what you think about this. Uh, because as much as I am a sucker for the for the will they won't they and I think Rob Morrow and Janine Turner have have really great chemistry as the the you know central couple, um, but I had a real hard time with some of the gender politics of the show, and I felt like it went back way too frequently to this oh she's a frigid bitch aspect of the show, and it it, it it's not constant. But it's it comes up, there's like an anger to Joel in how he reacts and interacts with Maggie that would get really uh, troubling for me. It's like, I get, I get it, they're trying to say, oh, they're squabbling so much, but really it's because they like each other. But there would be just this anger underneath it rather than a playfulness that was problematic to, to me. Did that, did that bother you at all, Jason? I don't know. I'm trying to, it's hard to think back of, uh, to that type of stuff. I'm trying to think of any of the handful of episodes I just watched sort of show that, I mean, overall you, you watch some of the episodes and especially early on, um, Joel's kind of a jerk. <laughs> you know, he's a, yeah. O- he o- overall he's, he's, I mean, one of the very first scenes is him like yelling at a guy on the phone and, basically dissing like everybody that's in the bar (laughs) that lives in that town, you know, because he's not getting his way. I I think that was a thing that I sort of noticed watching some of the later episodes was that you would think that over time spent in a place like that, that you would soften some. I mean, ultimately, like you said, they sent him off on like all of a sudden he becomes a mountain man, but it was like their way of taking him off screen, Mm -hmm. but still keeping him on the show. Uh, but for the most part, he's still the doctor that doesn't believe a lot of anything 
and and hasn't really softened that much. Uh, I remember watching one of the like it was like a season five episode or something like that, and he's still talking to the patients and using like total doctor speak and you know all the big medical terms and stuff like that to where the guy is like what and he looks at Marilyn and Marilyn's like take two aspirin <laughs> and, and then and if it doesn't go you know if, if that doesn't help you know come back you know in a couple of days or something like that you know even over the course of being there four years like he hadn't even like his bedside manner hadn't softened any and so it, it is interesting going back and watching something where the show is is much slower than I remember which is not necessarily a bad thing because of the sort of the laid back of the town and and stuff like that it sort of works but you do sort of build up your like your memories of something and then you watch it and they're not exactly the same or, or things don't necessarily quite hold up exactly what you remember but yeah I don't I don't remember their you know their relationship always being all that yeah you, know, you know all that great because mostly he was just <laughs> a lot of times he was just kind of a jerk uh in general well, I feel like uh, I, I really think that Turner puts a lot more layers to Maggie and like insecurities and different things than Morrow does to Fleischman. I mean, and maybe that's just like what she's given to play. But you think, you know, he he's not given a lot of stuff that really takes depth. Well, she's given quite the backstory of basically all her boyfriends, every, every guy that she's ever got like started to fall for or really gotten close to end up dying in some really bizarre way, like falling asleep on a glacier and freezing to death or getting hit know. by a satellite falling yeah. from space. Yeah. yeah. So, so they give, that gives her some, some nice notes, but, but I, I also, I, cause again, they do have a really nice rapport. It's just every now and again, they just, and I don't know some of that it's hard to, to speak to it because it it is the center of a lot of the show for for quite a while but and and their banter when they're when they're just good-naturedly bickering back and forth i think works really well and really does fuel the show and the show's also we should mention incredibly sex positive like i when they go off to um juno for the weekend because he's got a conference and she wants to go see the touring comp- company of blame is which is like if you've got a plane why wouldn't you that's awesome <laughs> that's um they end up almost getting together, uh, and you know her response is, "Well, why shouldn't we? We're both adults. Uh, we're both sober, and uh, we both don't have HIV, right? Right? Like the fact that that's something that they say on this show. I love uh, that. In in general, it's very positive uh, and accepting." But every now and again from Joel, I, I was getting that it was I feel like that would be the one element that would make it hard for me to to really mainline the show if it eventually does go up on, on Netflix. I would have to, I think, step away after a handful of episodes, maybe because uh, of that. But I'm glad it didn't you know, stand out to you as much as it, as it did to me. Yeah, well, it just at least I didn't notice it in any real fashion in the, the few episodes that I watch now. And it's not something that that I recall like 18 year old me noticing in the show uh, at the time, really. Uh, but I can see, I mean, even in the first couple episodes or, you know, here in the first season, as they're starting to, you know, bicker back and forth over plumbing and various th- problems that he's having as her as uh, with her as the landlord, there is that a little bit, I guess, at times where, but I, I think it's like, he's just a jerk in general. Uh, I, I don't know. It's almost how I see it. It'd be interesting to go back and see more of, 
uh, you know, like some season three, season four episodes uh, and recall that because I didn't get I, I watched a, a few episodes from like season five and six and then some from the first season. So sort of the beginning and the end to like refresh my memory. Uh, but season three and four is really where it hit its stride and really became popular. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it'd be interesting to actually watch a, a good number of episodes in those in those seasons to see if, you know, if it's if that stuff, that type of stuff is still like stands out or whatever. Yeah. Well, just for me, it goes too frequently to the, oh, well, she just hates men. She hates all men uh, camp. And, and that's not necessarily the show agreeing with or saying that, but Joel saying that and nobody is disagreeing with it. You know, <laughs> nobody, like the, sh- the show doesn't go, actually, really, it's you're being an ass. You're being um, an ass, and she's really cold to this because every guy she's ever got close to has died in well, the Well, or she's really gotcha. cold to you. Yeah. She's not cold to anybody else. <laughs> Maybe look in the mirror a little bit more. Um, and just that idea of um, – uh, the the oh they're they're fighting they're fighting really what she wants you to do is to kiss her which like that kind of stuff which just can promotes rape culture and no doesn't mean no kind of stuff so there's some stuff there that really gave me pause but and the other spot element of that is when we have the several episodes of of hauling uh, reassuring Shelley that no I don't care about your brain I, I love you for your body which he literally <laughs> says and I know they're going for for funny with that. They're like trying to turn, you know, overturn, you know, what we're expecting the conversation to be and have some fun with that subplot. But it still was having a little trouble <laughs> with that. Did you have, were there any aspects of the show upon rewatching that, that really were different than you remembered it or that, uh, that struck you this time? I, I think mainly the, the pacing of things of, of not realizing sort of how laid back it was. It's super chill. I think I remember it being funnier. Mm-hmm. You know, like there was more of a comedy aspect to it, but now it just seemed it, it was more of a quirky aspect to it. Things were were humorous, but not in a laugh out loud, funny type of way. Uh, it's just, you know, sort of, you know, weird situations or odd takes on things or a character that, you know, just has an odd point of view on something. I think those are really the main things that stuck out to me as different from what I remember from watching it back when it was actually on. Yeah. Well, because it is very much an hour-long dramedy. Because it's not trying to be a comedy, but it also isn't particularly dramatic. It's more you're spending an hour with these people. And so the enjoyment comes out of getting to know the people and then being able to anticipate how they'll respond and, and just watch them go through, you know, from their start of episode to end of episode arc. Um, there's a lot of, huh, kind of <laughs> moments on the show. And I think, and, and it really is very interested in philosophy and in uh, discussions of, you know, coincidence and, and where these very different people are coming from to, to put them all in the same place. And I, I do think that is a real strength of the show and the kind of thing that would just kind of make, makes it challenging to uh, classify. It did win best drama awards. So they weren't, definitely weren't going for it as a comedy at the time yeah um but it it also like you say is not as outright comedic as something like gilmore girls and like an hour-long straight-up comedy like that or or bunheads um though i think both share a lot of dna with this yeah it definitely was more of a a drama but that's the thing is like i think over time i built it up as it being more of comedy 
and it wasn't quite that but it's not also it's also not like high drama either on the on the other side of things it's very low stakes but yeah i think it it just hit i don't know it hit uh, a bunch of different ideas at the time uh, it was it was different than anything else that was on uh, which is you know still you know every season when there's a gazillion shows that come out you're on <laughs> It's always the ones where somebody has got some new take on something that uh, usually sticks out instead of this, you know, the people going for the same old, same old. Uh, and there wasn't anything. I mean, Twin Peaks came out around the same time, and that was a weird small town, also filmed in the state of Washington. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but definitely going for two completely different things. Um, you know, as, as they said, no, there's. There's no murder mystery on Northern <laughs> Exposure. No um, creepy possessions. <laughs> yeah, no. No. It, it, while they while they might talk about some various things uh, on the show, you didn't actually see you know, like uh, a lot of these uh, these strange things. They were just sort of hinted at or or what have you. And the whole backdrop of the show is is uh, John Corbett's Chris. Chris in the morning and his radio show, which is him, you know, philosophizing about life and, you know, quoting various books and, you know, philosophers and various things, you know, reading excerpts that would just appear uh, as the, as the show would go on, like they have a, a scene, I think it's in the second episode where Joel wakes up and Chris is on the radio and there's a scene taking place there with the radio there is there in the background and then it goes to chris like at the radio station and then the next scene is at the bar and the radio is on in the background there as well and he's continuing to read the way they f- would fill that in sometimes there uh, sometimes it would play as sort of voiceover or narration and then other times it was actually the background of the scene and it would just keep going and uh, but a lot of times they would try and tie up these the various things that were happening in the episode with, you know, whatever sort of Chris was talking about on the radio that day, uh, they would use to, to bring out those types of uh, ideas to, to talk about, which is sort of a weird thing within this, within a show uh, to all of a sudden be, you know, quoting some philosopher out of nowhere, just this guy in this small town in, in Alaska is not where you would think to go to for a deep philosophical debate. But it works. Yeah, but but yeah, but it but it works. Yeah. Well, do you have any final thoughts on Northern Exposure, Jason, or uh, a favorite a favorite episode or character, maybe that we haven't mentioned one off? No. Well, I think I think really overall, like uh, Ed is probably my favorite character, and then Marilyn, just for the understated, almost the funniest bit of the show, was just her always all of a sudden just being there with exactly what the doctor would need at any given time and otherwise just sitting there at her desk knitting. So those, those two characters of the, of the episodes that I watched, I really enjoyed watching. Like, I think I said that before uh, watching the, the pilot episode or the premiere episode. And then I think actually the final episode that Rob Morrow was on is a really good episode. Like I mentioned before with the whole quest uh, overall, I, I would highly recommend it. A couple of observations that I noticed uh, while watching it, uh, the first season, 
episodes are about 48 minutes long. Mm -hmm. And in the final season, episodes were still about 45 minutes long. And nowadays, episodes are 41 minutes long. Maybe. (laughs) Every now and again, you'll get one that's like 38, and you're like, what? But that's a thing that happens now? There are a few... There are some of uh, some of the channels like I've noticed some of the Fox shows here recently are starting to inch back the other direction mm-hmm. uh, because you can only shorten it. You can only add so many commercials <laughs> to an hour before it becomes patently ridiculous uh, <laughs> that, and only continues to hurt <laughs> you more and more. Uh, but, yeah, just seeing that over the course of five years that the show is on, it lost three minutes an episode. Uh, but also realizing that they they had the ability to sort of be laid back and tell this sort of lightly, slowly paced story uh, because they, you know, they didn't have to chop like six, seven minutes of that story out and then try and figure another, you know, other ways to be able to get you that information so that you, the story makes sense by the end. Yeah. Uh, that was, that was uh, the other thing uh, that I noticed. And, the other you mentioned uh, Gilmore Girls. Uh, I also wanted to mention a few other shows that sort of have uh, a similar feel. Uh, first off, Heart of Dixie, which is almost an identical show, just uh, gender swapped, mm-hmm. where you have a, a a female doctor that ends up in a small town, uh, you know, fish out of water. Uh, you know, New York doctor ends up in a small town, but in this this you know, in the South. Uh, and then also there was uh, uh, Men in Trees. Which oh, was yeah. Anne, Anne Heche as a relationship, you know, like doctor that is in, unlucky in love herself and so decides to head off to a small town in Alaska where, you know, the men outnumber the women by quite a uh, quite a number. Uh, and then you also, you, you mentioned Gilmore Girls, which has that small town aspect, lots of quirky characters. And then another one of my personal favorites, if you like the quirky small town, but with a sci-fi bent, there's Eureka, uh, which is very similar in in that type of vein where it's a small town. It just happens to be everybody's a quirky genius you know, mm-hmm. working on various uh, projects that are going to get the sheriff killed uh, at, at any given time. But yeah, those are, if you like any of those types of shows, if you've watched any of those recently, I would think you would definitely enjoy jumping back and watching something like Northern Exposure. Yeah, absolutely. Those are great, great picks. And uh, I, I haven't thought about Mending Trees in a long time. I don't think I watched that while it was on, though I'm familiar with it. So uh, yeah, maybe that's one to, to hunt down, <laughs> see, see how it compares. But uh, thank you again, Carl. Uh, our wonderful listener Carl for for getting us to talk about Northern Exposure and it's been it's been on my list for quite a while. My one of my college roommates had the seasons and I always saw the adorable little parkas that the first seasons are packaged <laughs> in. I was like, I should watch that show, and I got about like I made time to watch like two episodes ever uh, while we were living together. And uh, now I do not have access to his DVDs, so uh, it took it took Carl picking this show for for me to to hunt it down. And I'm glad that I did. I had a lot of fun with Northern Exposure, and I hope more listeners will will check it out. If they haven't seen it yet, I hope they will check it out. And let us know, uh, those who are fans of the show, uh, leave a comment over at the website and let us know your favorite episodes, your favorite characters, how you feel about the whole 
Rob Morrow, like trying to leave thing and how the show <laughs> handled that. Um, but yeah, cause I look forward to, to everybody's, everyone's thoughts on that, but it's been a pleasure talking with you, Jason, as always, where can our listeners find you and your work online? Well, you can find me, uh, writing and sometimes podcasting about TV at the, at TV uh, as well as on Twitter at the TV and then talking lots of TV on the, <laughs> the pot on the weekly podcast over at TV times com or on Twitter at TV times three. And, uh, yeah, yeah, plenty, plenty of TV to be talked about. You know, so, so much TV, so little time. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Well, thank you one more time, Jason, for coming on. And thank you, everyone, for listening. I'll be back next week with another episode of The Televerse. Mm-hmm.